you expect me to talk? Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the starship Enterprise. It's five-year mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before. episode 42 of do you expect to talk i'm becca and joining me as always are dave and chris and special guest charlie brigden how are you all hello hi folks hi i have to admit i'm i'm much much warier of our listening audience than i was during bond (laughs) a because i know bond better there is so much star trek out there and uh there are people who know it in great much much more depth than i do well, I mean, we'll we'll come to sort of our, our histories with it. But I, I know, for example, Discovery's coming fairly soon. And we'll, we'll talk mm. about that a bit mm, later. Can't wait for that. We'll talk about that later in, in this run of, of shows. We won't talk about it much tonight. But I know that there's been references to a certain event just before TOS. And I've seen all sorts of talk over social media about what that event could be. And most of it went right over my head. And I consider myself a Star Trek fan. So, yeah, there's there's a lot I don't know, and there's a big, big universe of it out there. I also think like the fans of Star Trek are a bit more, so to say, hardcore than they are like Bond fans. I mean, I, I think Bond... I think you can kind of... You can, you can have disagreements with uh, Bond fans, and it'd be kind of like... You kind of on like, still friendly terms. Yeah, a couple <laughs> of headbutts and it's all over. <laughs> <laughs> I, th- I, th- I think with with Bond and Star Trek, they're such opposite things. I mean, Bond is all about um, the, the leading man with the star and everything, and it's all kind of wish fulfillment. Um, uh, and Bond is very much a general audience's thing, whereas Star Trek has always been kind of an alternate thing. And I think from like the kind of the social outcasts and things like that. Yeah, um, I think so. And not only that, it, you know, it, there's a big... I mean, imagine if Game of Thrones had had 730-odd episodes yeah, with, with different continents and different leads and different things and film spin-offs and cartoons and everything else. Um, the, the lore is quite, um, is quite dense, and it can get a bit fucking dick-waving over who knows most. Exactly, uh, and all the rest of it, and that's really not the case with Bond. I mean, yes, there there are continuation novels, and you know there are there is a lot of trivia around it, and there are people who know more than we do. But having, is, is but having, yeah, the, 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 just bigger, yeah, not not bigger <laughs> in popularity, but certainly bigger, bigger in amount of it. Yeah, so, the the worst with, with Bond is always the over the normal. Um, who's your favorite Bond, or who was the best Bond? That's when it gets kind of. Um, a bit nasty with Bond fans and like you say general audiences around so whereas with Star Trek fans it generally is Star Trek fans yeah absolutely not necessarily it, it does seem a much more core part of your identity if you're a big Star Trek fan than if you're a big Bond fan mm. I think um, 
yeah, this is this is my argument with Bond though, because it always seems more like if people are a fan of something, it's gonna be like Game of, Game of Thrones or Star Trek or Star Wars, whereas Bond is kind of a bit more left field. You know, it's it's more it's more common for people to say, oh, you're a fan of Trek rather than a fan of Bond, for example. I, I don't know why, but that's just my thinking. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I I, I don't know. I mean, there seem to be kind of. Uh... I don't know if this actually is true, but it seems to be like uh, certainly in kind of like a, a, a jokey media kind of way. There's like a certain rivalry between, or oh, you your, your Star Trek or your Star Wars, and I, and I don't and, and I don't think that that really that right. There's a rivalry there. I don't think any of that it, it exists. No, no I, think it's true. I, I, I no. was I, yeah, I, the punch ups I've had with people over whether we prefer Chinatown or Big Trouble in Little China. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> Well, you know, well, I think the answer's obvious there, isn't it? Big trouble, of course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Easy. Funny thing is, I knew I, I knew just before I said, and I thought, <laughs> I don't know, Chris is the only one who's going to answer that. <laughs> and he will say big trouble in Little China. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, it's got star in the title. To be fair... I, I think so. That sounds like I was joking, but in, re- in reality, I'm generally being serious. <laughs> no, I know you are. <laughs> but, I mean... William Shatner and uh, uh, Carrie Fisher have kind of wound it up a little bit by taking mm. pot shots at each other over the years. But generally, they are different genres that happen to just have a lot of space in them. Yeah, I'd say, and I say this as a kind of there, as a, as a guy who's only really watched the films, and I don't think I've even seen all the films all the way through. Um, Star Trek is more actual sci fi. I mean, I was going to say that um, to me. If you're just going to think, what's the pin- pinnacle like sci-fi like medium out there, whether it's TV or film, it, it, it is Star Trek. I mean, that, I mean, uh, you can, there's been there's stuff that's gone back since like in the fifties that where sci-fi started. And but I think if you had to nail down what, what sci-fi is as an essence, I think Star Trek is the best example of that. Um, where Star Wars is kind of just like what well, basically just natural I think adventure. We'll talk about it a lot next week. Because um, certainly, the first Star Trek film is a is a sort of is very very Gene Roddenberry, the creator of Star Trek, and it's also in final execution a little bit of a reaction to Star Wars. But we'll get to that. They're very very different. I, I think Star Wars has a greater sense of wonder about it. I'll certainly say that because it's more in the fantasy genre. Yeah, I always see Star Wars as being fantasy. Um, because it's all about kind of like knights and things and princesses and also with the kind of Western flavor as well. That Star Trek admittedly has a bit of it as well. Yeah. Um, but it's it's very much kind of about magic and things like that. And uh, so, yeah, there's very little science fiction apart from the kind of the, the dressing, the spaceships, things like that. But everything in essence is much more fantasy based. There is, there is. Uh, I mean, if you look at their approaches to it. Uh, the Millennium Falcon goes to light speed. Uh, we know there's a hyperdrive, but there's never any sort of explanation for that. Similarly, in the films, at least for lightsabers. I mean, we've talked yeah. about kyber crystals and everything else, mm. but the fact is, generally speaking, it's just this hard light thing, and we just take it as red. Um, with Star Wars, there has been, oh, with Star Trek, sorry, there has been attempts over the years to explain how warp works, and so on. And sometimes it will be meaningless technobabble, but they will try to ground it in some kind of plausible vision of what the future might be. So it all started with Gene Roddenberry, 
uh, how did it come to light? Because I've heard the, the the story of him dressing up as a as a cop. Uh, and I'm well, running. No, into... he was a cop. Yeah, he actually, yeah, he actually okay. worked as a, yeah. as a cop for some okay. time. Cops <laughs> tend to dress up. That's <laughs> illegal. <laughs> they, 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 yeah, they keep having. Yeah, they have a best cosplay award every week. <laughs> Gene wouldn't be cosplay you, award. You look like a policeman today, Gene. <laughs> so authentic. How did you do that? Wow. Well, I mean, know. I'm hazy on the story, so I'm not entirely oh, sure. He quit. He quit. I mean, again, we're, I'll get bits of it wrong, and I've got I've got a fun fact coming up. So watch right, the space. We'll, we'll we'll cover sort of G, some facts about Gene Roddenberry down the line then. But certainly he was, uh, um, he wrote other things before this, but Star Trek was his, his big success. He didn't get it right first time, though. It took a couple of, um, couple of pilots, wasn't there, I think? Cause mm-hmm. Yeah, two attempts yeah. to get, off the, uh, to get off the, onto the air. Let's come back to, to TOS, actually, because uh, we, we have sort of loosely structured this show. Let's start with us and Trek individually. Not so much each series, because we'll go through them, but... First memories of Trek, first thing that drew you towards it. I guess we start with Charlie as the big Trek fan. Um, the, the, the thing that brought me to Star Trek um, was BBC Two. Um, in the 80s, BBC Two used to run, at tea time, 6 o'clock, used to run a load of uh, science fiction films, American science fiction films um, from the 50s. So you had stuff like Forbidden Planet and things like that and Fantastic Voyage. Um, so all these all these great sci-fi films were on at tea time when we could all kind of sit down and watch them. Um, and at the same time, they were rerunning um, episodes of the original Star Trek series. So um, from there, I used to kind of watch it with my, uh, um, with my mother, and uh, just got kind of really, really into it. And then seeing the, uh, starting to see the films. Um, and it just kind of made me into a, an absolute hardcore fan. I was kind of dwindled over the years a little bit. Um, I kind of lost it halfway through Voyager. Missed Enterprise out completely. Oh. Well, it's been a long run. And then didn't, yeah. <laughs> 18 odd years, but you know. When you're on your own. Um <laughs> Oh. And uh, so, and then kind of came back to it when the uh, um, when the new films came back around, and then yeah, it's uh, I love Star Trek. I have a reasonably large um, Star Trek Enterprise tattooed on my forearm, um, which is kind of the ultimate proof. So I'll tweet that at some point. But yeah, after, th- after three films, we're going to blow that arm up and build him a new one. <laughs> <laughs> It, 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 it does seem to be a staple law to, like, when you get to the third film, blow up the Enterprise. <laughs> Just blow shit up. Yeah, we'll get to it. We'll try not to spoil too much more, actually, because uh, some of you may be watching along with us and you haven't seen them before. We know we've got a few people who aren't really fans, but they sort of came to us during the Bond series or whatever. Uh, my story's extremely similar in that Charlie and I are around the same age. Uh, yeah, BBC Two. I can't. Re- I was trying to remember if it was a Tuesday or Wednesday night. I forget which. Well, think after it was school, a- like around six o'clock. Yeah, six o'clock that you used to be on. Um, and I don't know if it was at the same time as the Invaders. The Invaders was on another night, but I can't remember if that replaced Star Trek within 
off series or whatever. I can't remember because I remember around the same time Battlestar Galactica was on as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, so whether they all ran at the same time on different nights, we don't know. But um, yeah. certainly uh, the original series was playing. I reckon I probably saw, at a complete guess, 30-odd episodes that way in that it was weekly for quite a while. Um, and then suddenly it disappeared. And it disappeared to allow the next generation to start. Um, and we'll go. We'll get to the next generation a little bit later on, but I think it's no spoiler to anyone to say it doesn't start overly well. So I kind of went away from it in disgust until somebody at school said to me, "Oh, it's got a lot better now," and I started watching it again in that slot. And I think a few years went by, and literally there was a blockbusters near me that were renting them all out. So I went through them all via video. Uh, original series and uh, Next Generation. So they're the two shows I know really well. But you guys are not such... Uh, you haven't seen as much of it. No. I, I mean, it, I'm going to be a bit rubbish. It's, like, it's kind of similar to what I my first memory of Bond. I don't really remember that well having one, but it's it's kind of integrated in, in my memory. You know, I remember seeing flashes of the film, so I'll probably say... It's probably more the films when it's been shown on BBC One or something. Um, I you know I remember seeing flashes of like Rafa Khan or the uh, or the motion picture and, and stuff like that. Um, as for the TV show, I think I, I remember it being on, but again, not really having that much interest in it because I wasn't really a huge fan. But I did kind of enjoy watching um, the films. Um, as as they got on, but I was never a huge fan. It, it, it is a surprising thing. I mean, the only uh, Star Trek film I saw at the cinema was Undiscovered Country. Um, and next one, next Star Trek film I saw at the cinema was the reboot one. So, you know, that kind of level shows my kind of... I didn't really have that much of an interest in Star Trek. Though I, 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 I will say I kind of respected it, but just thought it just wasn't for me. But I enjoyed it if it was on. Can't type of thing. So if it was on TV, I'll watch it, but I won't necessarily go and seek it out. Um, so yeah, uh, Becca. Yeah, pretty much the same, really. Um, I think I probably came to Star Trek probably again, like through my dad. Um, he was a big sci-fi fan. He got it from from his dad, my granddad. Um, the like Isaac Asimov, Arthur C. Clarke, sort of writers like that, really. Um, I've not seen too much. I've actually, I think, I think I've only seen like the first, the motion picture. I may have seen that years ago. I don't recollect much of the other um, original series Trek films, so I'll be seeing those through fresh eyes, as it were. Um, I've seen all the the generations, next generations films, and I've obviously seen the reboot movies. Um, but it's been a while since I saw like the next generation set of films, so it'll be good to review those again with fresh eyes. Um, but yeah, I don't really have the same memories as you guys. I'm not sort of growing up with that so much, um, but it's kind of it's, it's been around in the background, and generally because I'm a bit, a bit interested in sci-fi anyway. So I've kind of come to it, through, you know, through, through that angle. You've got Bond through your dad as well. It, it does worry yeah. me that what, what if your dad's favourite programme had been Pebble Mill at one? <laughs> like, what, what would you, what would you, the landscape of your fandom be as an God, adult? God. <laughs> Dave, <laughs> Dave, no one's favourite programme was Pebble Mill at one. Out of touch, Marsh. Out of morning. No. <laughs> but um, but no, so I think yeah, like uh, what Becca said. I think it was just more because I was more uh, of an. Act- I like me action films as even as a younger child, and that's probably what drew me to things like Bond more. So Star Trek was something a bit more thoughtful and more about ideas, and well, when people sort of like 
talking, debating stuff and deciding things. You know, it, you know I was like, yeah, just get to the shooting. I want, I, I want the violence, death. Uh, you know, uh, so just like, yeah, it, it, it's not for me. Um, so, but I can, but now I can probably appreciate it a lot more now I've uh, matured a little bit. Uh, <laughs> 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 Really You've got a long right. way to reach my level. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and your, your levels of maturity are a long way off yet, Dave. They're, they're, they're practically <laughs> unmeasurable. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah, my my, my fan base has always been set a bit more around action orientated because Star Trek wasn't necessarily set around action. I mean, if you had like a an action set Star Trek, it's not really the, the you know the Star Trek really I mean if you you know I think I'm sure we'll get into it in the films um, when they start doing it up but more the, the, the action stuff it stops being kind of like Star Trek it stops being like what what even even I would say it defeats the purpose of what is the point of what is Star Trek so yeah I guess the, the thing now I mean it, it, the only really TOS and TNG are really relevant to the films but we will take a whip through them it does start with uh, obviously the original series uh 1966 to 69 it turns uh 50 during this run september the 8th it will turn 50 years old um charlie talk to us a little bit about um your what is it about tos that appeals i guess back then especially it was kind of it was so different to, uh, to to everything else, even growing up watching the other kind of sci-fi shows that are around, and uh, from American side of things, you had like the Twilight Zone, which I didn't really see that much of as a kid. Then you had other stuff like Lost in Space and the Time Tunnel and Land of the Giants and things like that, um, which were a bit more kind of whimsical. Yeah. Um, and then you had Star Trek come along, um, which seemed much more like a kind of a film and uh just kind of the uh, the ideas it had um and the kind of really deadly serious way it took on those ideas and then used kind of the the science fiction kind of allegory that kind of all the best science fiction um media works do um and using the whole thing as, as an allegory and um this whole kind of family crew um and just the way it kind of developed into um, the relationship between Kirk, Spock and McCoy and those three, and then it kind of branched out. Um, and, uh, yeah, and it, it was just fantastic to kind of see. And, and, yeah, nowadays you can just turn on and you sit on the sci-fi channel or anything and there's all sorts of ridiculous things or the films now and everything is just kind of like wall-to-wall um, to the point where it's difficult to... Uh, to imagine um, being at a point where this was like your weekly source of wonder. I mean, for instance, the uh, the episode, The Corbomite Maneuver, um, where kind of goes through all the episode with this kind of scary alien ship and this big alien on the view screen that looks terrifying. Um, and uh, and then you kind of get to the end of it, and it's a, uh, a little alien child that, uh, yeah, exactly. That is that is looking to uh, the same thing. Gentle the Enterprise of the future. <laughs> um, the the Enterprise is doing, and uh, yeah, and, and trying to seek out new life. Um, and it's just the way that's that's presented, and these kind of things that you don't just from point of views that you don't kind of think about. Mm. 
Um, and then obviously at the same time, there was kind of like Russia with the Cold War and all that sort of thing. Um, and all the, the racial tension as well. Um, and uh, yeah, so it was and all about Star Trek has, has always been about kind of working together for the future. And nothing really um, underlines that more than the original series for me. Yeah, I mean, with me, the, the hardest thing to admit as a Trek fan to Trek fans who are listening is I only think about 40 to 50% of Star Trek's any good. All of it, I mean. In the, I think there's an awful lot of filler. We're still in, you know, even when you get to the later series, we're still in an era of them trying to crank out 26 episodes a year. And it's very hard to keep the quality up. I mean, I'm quite pleased Discovery's only going to be 13. I think that's a much, much more sensible run. Mm. Star Trek also had the pro- t- twin problem of money. It was never properly funded. It wasn't really, really wanted by NBC. And in fact, it was made by Desilu Studios, which is Desi Arnaz and Lucy. And it was Lucy or Ball who stepped in and actually got, got the thing made. So it was never really wanted by NBC. And so there's not a lot of money there. And, and the second problem is for all of Gene Roddenberry's considerable, well, he offered Star Trek to the world. So I, I can't knock him too hard. But he was notorious for rewriting other writers. And he also had this thing about there could be no conflict between the crew. So, and as Jonathan Frakes, who's a Next Generation crew member, pointed out, that's the opposite of drama. Hmm. So they, they had a lot of problems with this. Roddenberry starts fading into the background about halfway through the second series, and their budget just gets dropped every year. So what you've got is a very good first season, but it's 29 episodes. So again, there's filler in that. Second season's pretty good. And then the third season has got some gems, but it's some of the worst TV you'll ever see. And Shatner goes backwards as an actor. You watch him in the first couple of, of few episodes, and he's slim and fit and good. And by the last series, it, it, I tune out about halfway through the episodes. There are far too many fist fights in TOS, which is why I'm more of a TNG guy. So Chris is right. It's not an action show. It is about working together but it was sold as as wagon train to the stars so i think of tos as much more about exploration and tng as being much more about diplomacy Mm. so tos they turn up much more often places they've never seen people they've never seen political circumstances they've never seen and they they all beam down together because this got corrected in TNG, the idea that the captain and first officer aren't supposed to go leave the ship together. That's a single, that's a single point of failure. Um, but it does mean that you've got them walking into towns or planets they don't know and then dealing with what's there. Whereas much more in TNG, they're dealing with races they know, uh, species they know, and it's about how they deal with some of the tensions between all of them. And yes, they do go places that they haven't been before, but it's much more about diplomacy. So TOS to me is 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 a patchy show. It is a dated show. But that triumvirate of Kirk, Spock and McCoy has never been matched in any other edition of Trek at all. So I'm a fan of about half of it in episode terms. I actually sort of prefer the film simply because just the more modern sensibility and also Shatner's a better a better actor and a better and Kirk is a better character in the films for me um, so that's me with TOS Charlie's going to tell us a little bit more 
about it and we'll explore it more with some episodes in a minute what about you guys with the original series uh again i don't really have much experience with the uh the series though my my, my general gut feeling is because i know the uh the the it's a question well, do you which one are you kirk or your picard fan um and it, You're allowed to be both. I don't understand. Well, yeah, I, yeah, I, I, I know, but it's always that that, that that debate. Well, who's the best though? You know, it's like you know Connery or more or. <laughs> well, that <was> easy. <laughs> well, you know, Janeway, Janeway, Janeway. Yeah, well, okay. <laughs> no, just no. Commander Paris. Well, simply because she was a woman. It's like the lazy bee of the series. We'll get to Voyager a bit later on, briefly. <laughs> <laughs> um... Um, yeah. Well, you know, it's got back there, you know, so it could be worse. Um, so, have you seen many episodes, Chris? No, I can't say. I mean, I've seen some in passing, uh, but I've, I've started to watch a few uh, of the original series. I think because of probably the films, to my speaking, but I, uh, I, I prefer, I do prefer uh, Kirk uh, as a captain because I think he's a bit more of a rebel. He's a swashbuckler. He, he likes to sort of like. Be, be get by by the seat of his pants and just like devil may care kind of attitude. Whereas uh, Picard's a bit more thoughtful. He's probably more someone you probably want as a captain. But um, um, but then again, what I think what makes the show work is, is like you said, I think probably Picard's probably a better ambassador for Star Trek. But his surrounding crew aren't as interesting as Kirk's. Kirk's uh, is. Is his own character, and he's got other the other characters to back him up. Uh, you know, it, it, we can break it down to the core three. You know, like Spock and um, McCoy. You know, you got that perfect balance of 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 that thing. You know, Spock's Spock's the one is is uh, more like into like or thinking of the logical thing about about any emotion. Which uh, which Kirk is the opposite. He's all about kind of like emotion, and McCoy's like the the skeptic going like, um, you know. What, what, what the fuck you know he's like doubting everything which kind of adds like a nice little bit of humour but it's a nice a nice balance and I think the whole other crew of, with Sky, Yahura uh, Sulu are all kind of principally a lot more colourful and a lot more you know there's a lot more to them than say the next gen in my opinion I'm sure people might disagree but I, I we'll say... talk about that when we get to TNG because I've, I've got a view on that certainly yeah, I must say I'm probably more familiar with the Next Generation because that's kind of what I grew up with. If I if I were to grow up with this series, um, I think the most thing I admire about Trek really is obviously is Roddenberry wanted to kind of not like unite people, but kind of obviously had it look got multi well multiracial crew. I mean you've got like sort of prominent um, African American actors and Asian actors in prominent roles um, as first sort of TV show to do that really um, in terms of like a sci-fi genre. Um, there some are some stories, the... sorry to interrupt, but it's something I've no. just read only in the last couple of days, because I've read part one of the 50-year mission, oh, which, cool. is a book, which is a book about, obviously, the whole 50 years, and the first book is supposed to be the first 25 years, and it, it is, because it goes through to 91, the last of the original crew films, but part two, although it's meant to be the second 25 years, is actually going to cover all of Next Gen, which is a bit earlier than that, but it said that Roddenberry would he would get affiliates in some part of the Bible Belt South saying that they didn't want, they wouldn't show it because there was a black woman on the crew. Oh, God. And Roddenberry would literally say, fuck you then. 
Well, mm. exactly. This is it. Exactly. This is you know. It's just because obviously, sort of fifties and sixties, all racial tensions in America, and obviously in England as well. But obviously, being predominantly American TV series, mm. um, there's, there's a lot of firsts from this show, which I think is, is really good. It's a real tra- trailblazing series, I think. Um, some of the episodes now have dated horribly, but that's it's to be expected. Um, I was watching. Is it the Devil in the Dark about the the monster that tunnels? Mm. Yeah, we'll get, we'll get to the Devil in the Dark in but, a bit. That's that's. Charlie's going to name some, and I know he's going to name the Devil in the Dark, so we won't go into it too much here. But no, I'm just saying, in, t- in terms of like the yeah. set and everything, you can see it's made out of. It's the hardest foam. to watch for a younger viewer now. Yeah, I, I have to say, I've, I struggled with that one. I mean, in terms of like the the plot and everything, I think it's it's really clever, and it's something you don't expect. Um, and also shows kind of great diplomacy, and also um, you know really clever writing that a lot of TV lacks today. Um, but yeah, stop, just, stop there on Devil in the Dark. So we're going to talk about it in a little while. No, no, I'm just going to say it's, it's yeah. quite good. So, but just because it's dated horribly and it looks fake. <laughs> but, so, um, have you, yeah, I, I would have to say have I prefer seen many, generation. Have you seen many TOS episodes? I'm working my way through them. <laughs> so, just a handful at the moment. Oh God, God, I've seen them for. I've, you know, they've been repeated on TV and things like that. So I've sort of seen them, but I haven't seen all of them yet, to be honest. So I'm kind of. Working my way through them as and when I can. So. Okay, well, on the assumption that there's going to be people listening to this who... I mean, the thing with any film series is the film should stand alone. You should be able to stick on The Wrath of Khan and it doesn't matter what the precursor to it was. But the thing is, you've got a bit of time now and I just think it's worth having a primer. Uh, so Charlie and I have looked at some episodes for TOS and TNG. Charlie sort of named a few for TOS. He's going to sort of take us through them now, talk about why he's chosen them, and we'll, we'll talk about whether we've seen them and so on. Charlie? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> starting with uh, what was the uh, um, the second pilot, um, which is an episode called uh, Where No Man Has Gone Before. Um, yeah, as, as mentioned earlier, that there was two initial pilots. Uh, one was called The Cage, and one, this second, When a Man Has Gone Before. The actual first episode to air was an episode called The Man Trap. That was the first, so none, none of the pilots initially um, aired. Um, which, but, which, which is why, if you watch them in release order now, suddenly in the third episode, like they're all wearing different uniforms. Because they're, yeah. oh, yeah. they're wearing the uniforms from the first pilot. But it's kind of yeah. not roll necks, but yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. yeah, so when a man has gone So um when a man has gone before is just a really nice kind of introduction to the show. Um uh, especially since the the cage, which we'll talk about in a minute, um in in a different form, did not star William Shatner. Um it instead um starred a an actor called Jeffrey Hunter. Um, as Captain Pike, who everyone knows now from the uh, from the JJ Abrams um, New Trek, as they call it. Um, but uh, but with when I'm, when I was coming before, you had this. It was really kind of a really kind of somber episode, and and again, like I said before, the seriousness of Star Trek really kind of came through, um, and it had a relationship between Kirk. And another crewman, um, Gary Mitchell, um, and eventually, with what happening is Kirk has to go up against Gary Mitchell after he turns evil, um, and uh, and it's kind of 
the kind of emotional side that it brought to that, um, along with the kind of yeah, the the real the real sense of, of Star Trek being something new, especially since the when I when I managed to come before, um, originally did not have the um, the main title theme or any of that kind of music um, as the others did. So it had different music. It was uh, so yeah, it was it was a bit more kind of serious, and uh, and it's just a real good primer for the type of show Star Trek is. I know, and if you've ever wanted to see William Shatner versus the movie version of Hot Lips Houlihan... Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, it is a really, really good episode. Um, have we all seen this one yet? Yeah, yeah. I, yes. I, think, I think I watched it in, in prep for Into Darkness thinking like, oh, this is going to be like... <laughs> the, this is going to be like the you know, what it's going to be based on, really. Not, not like yeah, Carl, was not, not Carl what everyone else is thinking. Yeah. Well, because... Uh, you know, if you cast a British gentleman, of course it's going to be calm and interesting. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Charlie. Um, so next up, uh, you've mentioned The Cage. Yeah. So while The Cage was not aired in its original format, um, it was instead <clears throat> um, uh, transmitted as an episode called The Menagerie. Uh, it was a two-part episode. And what it did really cleverly is used a lot of the footage from the cage um, in with a new episode. So what happened in in the cage, um, you had Captain Pike um, and the Enterprise, and he was trapped by these aliens called the Telosians um, in a kind of zoo kind of thing. And um, on, the, uh, on the actual episode of Menagerie, um, it turned out that there was a relationship between him and Mr. Spock uh, meant that Spock um, wanted to, uh, he basically stole the, uh, the enterprise to, uh, to take uh, Captain Bike back to the planet because in the, uh, in the, the, the time between he had become very, uh, um, very, as I say, um, Burned, I think, is probably the, the correct yeah, term. Yeah, he could, he could only communicate with... He was in this special sort of chair, yeah. if you like, and he can communicate. A bit like uh, people who've been paralysed might be able to sort of uh, communicate with one eyelid. He can communicate with, with this beep system through the, the thing. It's not Jeffrey Hunter playing him at this point. Uh, yeah. So he's very heavily made up. and He's just been in a bad accident, and his only means of communication and movement is this one sort of beep so they take him back to the Telosians because the Telosians can basically create illusions. Yeah. Um, um, and we're introduced for the first time to the Orion Slave Girls mm, as well. Uh, those of you who've seen the J.J. Abrams film, uh, the first one, we mean the green women. Yes. Um, <laughs> it, this is my favourite episode of Star Trek, really? I'd say, of the original yeah. series. Yeah, it's mm. it, you think, because what we've described is a clip show, but it, it just that doesn't do it justice. No, not not at all. And it's, and it's really interesting that um, you, you talk about Roddenberry not wanting conflict, but here is a, a, a conflict between um, Spock, who, especially since it's supposed to be the cool logical one, yeah. um, and Starfleet and, uh, and Kirk. Um, and it's really interesting to, to show that and, uh, and how that plays out. Yeah, now you're talking about it, it actually reminds me of a next-gen episode called Clues, where Data is literally... To been told not to tell them what's going on and it's similar mm. here spock is is 
not saying what's happening. It introduces us to the Federation. It introduces us to sort of admirals and all the rest of it. And it also introduces us to, in this certainly in this timeline, it won't be the same in what we will come to talk about as the Kelvin timeline later in the series. Um, if you don't know what that is, we'll explain it later. Um, that they've got different insignias for different ships. Yeah. Um, and I think people have come to think of the insignia as Starfleet, and at this time it wasn't. No, no. So, yeah, we need that. But, yeah, it's a terrific episode. The the one you're going to name next, I was really surprised how tense it was. Oh, yeah. No, it's it's it's, it's absolutely one of the best, which is um, Balance of Terror, um, which is all about the uh, the first time they see a... Uh, not only a, a Romulan ship, but a Romulan. So the uh, the kind of the kind of setup is that there's a uh, there's a neutral zone um, with the uh, with with the Romulans and this area where no one's supposed to go um, and no one's seen a Romulan. But all they know is is there has been a conflict with them and uh, and the Federation on Earth amongst the years and then it turns out that star bases along the neutral zone are being attacked and uh, the enterprise is as usual the only ship in the area um you, you always wonder with the amount of ships that uh, starfleet supposedly has a bit more it's always the enterprise fair, but yeah. <laughs> yeah so so for, so for those who aren't like accustomed to star what um what are the romulans the romulans well they could kind of you've got the romulans um who are like can I just interrupt to say we don't know at the start of this episode? Yeah. Okay. So there is a reveal in this because I, I know what Charlie's about to say, and actually for those listening, I think it's probably mm. wise that we don't. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the relevance yeah. we ought to say the re- the relevance of the menagerie, the last one we discussed, is quite obviously introduces us to Christopher Pike, which is relevant for the film series. The relevance of this, and that there's a few more when we talk in TNG. We introduced to the Romulans. The Romulans are relevant in uh, more in the next gen films. Actually, they're relevant in uh, Nemesis, um, and they're relevant in the Abrams reboot. Um, if you've seen that, you you probably have more of an idea. But certainly, um, it's the first time we see them, and it's tense. And it's also, I think, it's a good lesson for those who uh, would stereotype Kirk as hot headed because he's yeah. not. He's as cool as ice during this. And and very very much of this show is is based on uh, racial equality and the notion of being able to uh, to get along with other fellow crew members, whatever colour species they are. Mm-hmm. Um, and yes, so very much that, that this episode, the, the reveal Dave was uh, was talking about, and there's a crew member on there who is uh, um, somewhat racially charged, and it's very much about kind of yeah they. About solving those racial issues, and also um, about we obviously it was set at the the height of the Cold War. About two different crews, two different captains on an, on um, an, the opposite side of the war, but who aren't really kind of. It's not about what the war is about. It's not about all the history or all that. It's just about these two captains and how they work against each other but also noticing things about each other versus in term despite the fact that they are on completely opposite sides um it's notable as well that the um 
the Romulan uh, captain is played by Mark Leonard, who would eventually go on to be Sarek, who was uh, uh, Spock's father, and also a Klingon in the uh, opening of the motion picture. So, as far as I know, still to this date, is the only one person to play a Vulcan, a Romulan, and a Klingon. Yeah, um, I would is... think so. Ballads of Terror, of all the ones you're going to name, um, could be dropped in. I th- the two series are a lot more, the two main series we're going to talk about, TOS and TNG. Mm. There's a lot of differences between them, uh, and I don't think the episodes generally cross over too well, no. even ones that are rewrites of previous. But I think of all of them, Balance, Balance of Terror could comfortably be a Next Generation episode. Absolutely. And it's it's very much kind of like the hunt for Red October. Um, there's a yes. lot of, depending on who kind of who's writing it at the time, um, there's a lot of talk of, about Star Trek being very much like submarines in space. I mean, it's definitely kind of more um, explicit in things like the Wrath of Khan. Yeah, um, yeah exactly. But let's uh, say... Um, but uh, where you've got the kind of the two submarines in the ocean, and they're kind of where are they? Do we know that kind of thing, and kind of evading them and having to be creative with it, I think. Um, and yes, yeah, so Bounce of Terror is very much like watching an old war film. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, have you guys seen it? No, not yet. <clears throat> yeah, I have. So tense, so tense. I no, I. I really enjoyed it. Um, I it took me a while for the penny to drop to, to realise who who Mark Leonard was. I was like, oh yeah, you know. But um, no, it was really good. It's one of the best pieces of TV I've seen in a long time. And that's saying something. <laughs> I think the next one you're about to name, Charlie, uh, without giving it away, I think we talk about Kirk, Spock, and McCoy mm. being a necessary series of interrelationships that yeah. create almost like a whole a whole person if you like almost i think the next episode you're going to name is what happens when one of them's marooned without the other two exactly uh, and um, what limitations they have without the yeah the the, the, the the galileo seven um which or as is we named, like to call it flight of the phoenix <laughs> it is exactly the same um, plot yeah. yeah which is um named after the galileo seven just the shuttercraft um which is basically um, where you go into, you have a one of those team building exercises where it says you're crashed on a, on a, in the desert somewhere, and you've got this, and you've got this, and you've got this, and you'll have to work together to sort out these items and then um, put them in the correct order so you can all be a survive. And it's all um, so basically that's what happens with Spock leading the away team, leading the team on this, and where you have Spock's logic. And Spock seeing things in a very clearly logical manner versus the other members of the team with him who are quite disagreeable mm. and uh, who are not willing to uh, to work with him to uh, to solve their issue of, uh, of being stranded on this planet. And like Dave said, the uh, without the um, because because the way the triangle of Spock, Kirk and McCoy works so well against each other to come up with a complete idea of, uh, of and, and complete solutions. Um, only having one of those three people there is, uh, is, is a great example of showing the strength of that relationship. It is the sort of episode as well that if you were just glancing through, if you've not seen them, 
or you've seen them years ago, and you're glancing through little plot synopsis on on Netflix, uh, which is where they're all on Netflix at the time of recording. By the way, every episode of every episode of every series of Star Trek is on there at the moment, worldwide. So you shouldn't have a problem getting this this anywhere. Um, you would look at the Galileo Seven, and it looks like a filler episode. It looks like oh, well, they've just got them in a little thing down there, and it's just but but it really isn't. There's some really important characterization in there. And uh, a, f- a fun fact about this one is that the uh, obviously you mentioned earlier about Star Trek not having so much, so much of a, a big budget. Mm. Um, the uh, they actually they built a full size shuttlecraft, and the people who actually funded that were a model company called AMT. And what they did is they funded that in exchange for the rights to be able to make a model kit out of that. And so, so yeah, I guess the the relevance of this episode is is again, I think it's it's flavour for the world and 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 some of the themes of inter working together and also his background on Spock because it's the same when we get to data later on in TNG that they're supposed to be emotionless. Well, in Spock's case, it's suppressed emotion, but mm. same basic principle. Um, they've got to cheat with that a little bit, just a little bit, because data ends up wanting certain things. Well, that's kind of an emotion. And I think here, Spock is, although he doesn't show overt emotion, he's genuinely, I think, unsettled that the crew aren't mm. following what makes perfect sense to him. Yeah. And and it's played really, really well. Absolutely. Um, and the, the, the next one I'll talk about is an obvious one. Um, Vital. Space. Space Seed. Mm. <clears throat> Obviously, if you watch one episode, listeners. Watch this one. Obviously, is, um, is for the it? Films, I'm always interested by this one because because of its relevance to, uh, shall we say, uh, quite a favourite of the film uh, of franchise of Star Trek. Um, is it is it that well revered now because you know because of that film? Or yeah, was it was it like really, was it really well revered back then that he thought it was a good idea to kind of do a sequel to that? I mean, in, in terms of what happened with, I, th- I think we can say it's Wrath of Khan. Okay. Um, I, I don't, I don't, the... don't want to sort of ruin it just no. in case. I mean, you can you can watch you can watch Wrath of Khan without watching this episode, folks. Yeah. But if you are yeah. going to dip into episodes and yeah. you've got limited time, it makes sense to watch Spacey because it, it the Wrath of Khan is a sequel to it. Yeah, basically, with with Wrath of Khan, what they did is, um, when before they made it, they went back and they watched all of the original series episodes to find which would be the strongest one to have a sequel to, and then picked Space Seed and then went on from there. I mean, it's, it's a great episode anyway. We talk about the fit, the fist fights, um, and uh, this is <laughs> the greatest episode for that, apart from maybe Arena, um, and uh, but and Montalban's so good in in the part. But again, it's it's a real interesting kind of kind of um, idea. See, so basically, they pick up this ship, and uh, it turns out that the ship's got all these people in suspended animation from the 1990s, um, and it, it turns out it's they, pres- they get them out, and it's Oasis. <laughs> <laughs> so and yeah, so it's it's it's. And so he was genetically engineered. So it's got all these kind of the, the moral quandary there, um, which which Star Trek is always it's always so well at doing. And then um, Kirk being threatened and kind of whether or not his crew will kind of go against him because Khan is a very very um, charismatic man. 
Um, and it's just a great episode, and certainly one of the uh, one of the best, whether or not Khan exists or not, really. I kind of I kind of was surprised um, somewhat how they actually uh, it was there was almost sympathetic to Khan in in, in some aspects. I mean, they, they gave him a love interest, which actually you know I think it it makes watching Rafa Khan more impactful because you've got context to why he's essentially so pissed. Because if you watch just Rafa Khan. You just see, like it, you know, it just plays as, as like, well, his motivation is just pure revenge. But and then, of course, we get you... to the film, Chris, and and all he's focused on is Kirk, Kirk, Kirk. Yeah, and Kirk's almost forgotten him. Or yeah. it, it's not that he's forgotten him because he does recognise him, but it's he hasn't thought about him in years. But yeah, I think, yeah, but I think it works so so well because you got context for that revenge, you know. You, you kind of understand why he'd be pissed, you know. Um, but we'll get to Rafa Khan a bit more. But I think, yeah, it's uh, it's what it's it, it, it was. It, I was quite surprised how like uh, they didn't like even back then. Khan wasn't like like your flat out stereotypical baddie, you know. He wasn't like you know. There was like a sense of humanity to him, you know. He, he's benevolent. I mean, he, he cares about his crew. There is a there is a continuity error when we get to Into Darkness that really pisses me off because all you got to do is watch Space Flight. Like, there's a lot wrong with that film but it's the fact that yes. it's the numbers involved it's the numbers involved it's like well how did you fucking miscount it's one episode but anyway <laughs> um, have you seen it Becca? I have yes um, no, I, I really enjoyed it I thought um, Ricardo Montalban was, was very magnetic I think um I, I feel bad for the historian. <laughs> he kind of gets, rather than being court-martialed, just sent off to, to live with Khan. Her choice. Um, <laughs> well, no, yeah, exactly. She follows him, but it's like, oh. Yeah, you know. she's she's in love, you know. Yeah, she's falling for him. But, but no, I think, I I've, I haven't seen, I, I probably remember seeing Rafa Khan sometime on, you know, BBC and there somewhere. Um, largely forgotten, unfortunately. Uh, but I'll come to it in a minute. But I wonder if it is one of those episodes where you would have to, you may have to watch Spacey before watching Wrath of Khan. I don't know to get a bit of background to it, but I, but I don't know. Probably not. I don't think you need to. No. I saw Spacey sure. years after the Wrath of Khan. Sure. And, you know, we're recommending it. I think it's I think it's a good episode to watch. I think it's always better the more background you have. Yeah. But in all honesty, films should stand alone and the Wrath of Khan does. Sure. Absolutely. But the next one, as we've already mentioned, I think of all the ones you're going to name, this is going to be the hardest one for a new viewer, but I think it is so fundamentally Star Trek. Absolutely, and that is the Devil in the Dark, um, with, yeah, which which we mentioned earlier. Um, sorry, I skipped ahead a little bit. Sorry. <laughs> no, that's that's okay. This, I mean, and yeah, again, it's an incredible, incredible episode. And uh, for the, for those who haven't seen it, basically, um, the Enterprise is is joining this mining planet where these uh, miners keep getting um, attacked by some kind of monster. Um, and it's kind of the, the turnaround uh, with with what actually happens and how the uh, the issue is resolved is just absolutely, like Dave said, classic Star Trek and all about working together and recognising that the universe is full of, like Spock is and the Vulcans are favourite saying, infinite diversities in infinite combinations. 
and it's all about how we work amongst those diversities and all those different people and aliens and whatever races, all this kind of thing, how we work with those and how we recognise that uh, while what we think we're doing may be something to benefit us and maybe a, uh, a benevolent act to others may be seen as threatening. Um, and especially somewhere where there's a completely different language barrier um, and all, all sorts of different things. And I think certainly in, in society today, um, it is very, very relevant and also has the uh, the greatest line in the history of Star Trek, which is, uh, damn it, Jim, I'm a doctor, not a bricklayer, <laughs> <laughs> which is just fantastic. It, it is relevant. Yeah. I think almost any other sci-fi or any other any other show that attempted anything like this we won't give away the actual ending but it would no. it would end in a shootout of some kind and this doesn't now star trek could, could be at its worst it could be really preaching i mean there are some really clunky episodes later on that are trying yeah. to tell you racism is bad and okay you know there is one out there's one called let this be your last battlefield and it's mm. fucking rubbish because it's so heavy-handed, but this wraps a message in something else entirely and does it really well. And uh, I think this is an important one as well, which I think you were saying earlier about people accepting this episode, is how something which I've learned a lot of people today don't really know, either don't want to do or don't know how to do, but is, is learning to look at things in context um, in context of the when th- when things are made, um, in context of what happened, what was happening when th- when things were made, what was going on, um, and uh, and also like you said, things like budget, that kind of thing, and um, yeah, because the monster in this is basically covered in a big carpet. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's meant to be. It won't give too much away because it's fairly early in the episode. You see it. Yeah, and it's meant to be kind of a rock monster. And it's clearly sort of got a very fairly rock design blanket thrown over it. Mm. It's it's really poor visually. And um, that's not a judgment for all the reasons Charlie's just said. But it is going to be the heart. I think you can put on some of these we're talking about and just take them for what they are. This yeah. will pull some people out. Yeah, you, you, need, you need to kind of look at this and you, you need to kind of realise about that, yeah. I mean, there's there's a lot of things that Star Trek was really cleverly designed where um, there's a lot of things that are kind of hidden. Um, something certainly not so much, um, like like the, the the thing in the Devil of the Dark, which is called the Horta. Um, but you have kind of like there's lots of things where there's like bubble wrap packaging and things like that used. I mean, it's it's something that's continued in sci. I mean, in sci-fi. I mean, I remember um, watching a documentary about Alien and uh, parts of uh, Alien where they use ice cream trays and things like that in Return of the Jedi in the uh, the bunker razors um, and things like that there's, yeah. there's a um, when when you when they go into the bunker in Return of the Jedi to blow it up to get the shield down um, on Endor all the um, shield parts so the big things in the back are, uh, are styrofoam cups that you get for coffee machines just kind of piled up um, so yeah but it's it's an amazing episode and uh, yeah, it's it's kind of like one of my revolving favourites. Okay, the next one I would suggest is possibly the most famous TOS episode of the lot. Yes, for a few reasons. Um, yeah, the, the city on the edge of forever 
is kind of like the one that kind of everyone always kind of pulls up. Um, it's a brilliant example of sci-fi. Um, it has some really good interplay between Spock and Kirk and McCoy, um, and especially McCoy and uh, Edith Joan Collins, and uh, the notion of being able to to, to go back uh, through the uh, through the, the the Guardian of Time to be able to uh, to uh, to change things, and also destiny and fate. And whether changing things is a good thing or a bad thing, even if it appears on the surface to be a good thing, and how that emotionally affects our crew, and especially those three. It's also very famous in that the uh, the writer, Harlan Ellison, um, who's a very, very famous science fiction writer, was not a fan of the uh, what happened in the final episode versus what he originally wrote. And he has kind of since then released um, versions of, uh, of his script. And it's got, had like a comic adaptation and things like that. Mm. But it's, it's just an absolute class episode. Every time he's, he's quoted quite extensively in the 50-year mission. And mm. I have to say, not that it's taken out of context, but because that's the only context we have, he comes off as a bit of a misanthrope. He always does. Yeah, um, he doesn't come off well in that book. He's just doing nothing but whining. But it's not just whining. It's being quite insulting with it. Yeah. And it's like, well, unfortunately, that's the way things are for writers. They are bottom of the food chain when it comes to TV and film. But, I mean, it's a very good episode. I suppose the relevance of it is, firstly, how famous it is. I think if you're going to watch some TOS, you ought to watch this one. But also, again, we do get some time travel in the films. So it's it's quite interesting mm. to see how they did it during the original series. Have you guys seen it? Uh, no, I've not got to, got to it yet. It's the one with Joan Collins in it. Yeah, this is the one I got to recently. I'm literally working my way through you got you, um, your your list there. And I'll do the next generation kind of set of the list when we get to it. But yeah, I've seen this one most recently and I was like, that looks like Joan Collins. Because it is Joan Collins. But no, I think it's really interesting. I think it's one of the um, favourite episodes yet so far, actually. It's quite a busy episode. There's a lot going on. Um and sort of deal with like the depression and everything as well, which is which is really interesting. And again, you see a lot of that relationship between Spock and Kirk as well. And also, there's some really good comedic moments. Um, how they try and hide Spock's ears, and then how they try and explain away, you know, why, why he looks the way he does. But no, it's, it's really interesting. I think it's one of, my, one of the highlights so far. So it's also one of those episodes that had they done this in the third season, Shatner would have like shat on this. <laughs> intended because he's quite bad by the time they get to the third series in my opinion he's overacting terribly when you watch all of the episodes charlie's naming here william shatner's brilliant in all of them we'll get to it when we get to the films because he's really good in the films generally and nicholas mayer the director of a couple of the films has a theory as to why and a mm. practice of, as to how he got those performances out of him. And we'll get to that. Yeah. Uh, Leonard Nimoy could get good performances out of him as well. But it, through the series, he got more and more over the top. But at this stage, he's really good. And he's good in this episode. Yeah. Uh, the next one, I think, Charlie, was one of the few I remembered liking. And then when I watched it, I'm not sure I liked it as much. This is very comedic, this one. Yeah, this I that that's I think that's the way, reason I love it so much is and this this is an episode called the a piece of the action and uh, again it's it's another example of of Star Trek and certainly the original series where it was just going crazy in terms of kind of science fiction concepts and uh, and what what happens in this one 
is um, the Enterprise visits a planet where there's some kind of dispute, and it basically it's a planet where hundreds of years ago a historian visited there from Earth and left back, uh, left a book about gangsters. <laughs> so Just when make me come... think of the Royale from the Next Generation. <laughs> yeah. So when yeah. so when they've come back to this planet. It's just basically you've got 1920s uh, New York gangsters just as a planet. <laughs> I tell you what, it reminds me of the way they all talk in it, Shatner included. Although Shatner is entitled to ham it up here because he is doing a bit, if you like. But you know, in Diamonds Are Forever, where they got in the car and it was like, I got a brother. Yeah, that's how everyone talks through the whole episode. <laughs> <laughs> it's really funny. Oh, no. Um, and, I, I think, and then Kirk starts joining in, so he's yeah. talking to everyone like that as well. I th- I th- that's, that's the thing. I mean, I mean, I think Star Trek, um, while I mentioned earlier about, about me, how much, how serious it is a lot of the time, there is still a lovely sense of humour there. And again, that is definitely reflected in, in the films later on. I think by by this time as well, the the cast are really kind of having fun together, and uh, and you can kind of see that how they work off it. And yeah, Shatner here just is loving it, and where he's he's putting on this this tough guy gangster accent is hilarious. But halfway because it is also absurd, but also because you can see not just how much Shatner's loving it, but how much Captain Kirk's loving it. You can see Kirk is taking a real thrill in it, especially oh, he starts to sort of swagger. Yeah, especially yeah, because he's he's effectively being a bit of a gangland boss for a while. Yeah, and a and a and a gun and a, an arms dealer. But but um, yeah. So this this episode is, is just really, really and especially the way Spock is kind of going on with it all. So you've got you've got Kirk and Spock in zoot suits, and uh, and and the way Spock is trying to adapt to this whole thing. Um, especially being a being a Vulcan, and the interplay between Kirk and, and Spock with that, and um, yeah, it's, it's just it, it may seem an odd choice for me to pick to some people, but um, it's just one of those episodes that I really love. This this and, co- this crew do comedy better than the next gen. Now, when you've got, um, I mean, there are episodes that finish like an episode of Thundercats. Yeah. You know, like the jokes on you, stuff. <laughs> Credits. There are episodes where Kirk sat in his chair laughing and they're slapping each other on like the a naked gun. Uh, there are some cringe-making bits in this, but there is such a natural rapport, particularly between the main three and particularly between the main two, that they actually do comedy really well. And the relevance of this, Charlie's picked it because he likes it, but there is a four is quite a comedic film, and you'll see that this crew were always able to do it. Charlie, the last one you picked, uh, I think it comes actually before a piece of the action, but it was just the order we picked them in. This one is particularly relevant for one of the films later. Absolutely. Um, this is a, a Mock Time, which is another one. Um, I have Kirk and Spock heavy episode, but where um, Bok is, is taken to the Vulcan um, homeworld um, because of his uh, being uh, betrothed to, uh, um, to his Vulcan wife. And eventually the whole thing devolves into him fighting Captain Kirk, which is absolutely one of the most iconic uh, scenes and and images of Star Trek. And seeing these, not only these two friends and colleagues going against each other, but also the uh, ingenious way that it's resolved with the help of Dr. McCoy. 
it, it uh, also introduces the concept of Ponfar, um, and that's helpful when we get to Star Trek Three. Absolutely. Charlie, I mean, if, if, if people have only got time to watch a couple, what would you say? I'd say Space Seed, um, The Devil in the Dark, and City of the Edge of Forever. Um, honestly, I, I, I think if you have to pick one, I, I'd pick The Devil in the Dark. Um, it, despite what any uh, misgivings people might have about that episode and the carpets, um, that, uh, it's, it's just such a good episode and such an important idea of what Star Trek is as a concept and a, as a philosophy. That, uh, yeah. it's, it's very well, I read I only read today I, I knew it was William Shatner's favourite episode mm. um, but I read today it was Leonard Nimoy's as well oh, oh wow so both of our main two uh, named it as their favourite episode um, it depends how you want to look at this if you want a flavour of the original series I dare say Charlie's right if you literally just want to prepare for the forthcoming films obviously Spacey yeah, has absolutely. a direct link so then we move on to the next heavyweight series in the uh, saga the cartoon from the early 70s. <laughs> this is also on Netflix, I think, which is quite good. So if you're, if you're like me, you're a fan of animation. Mm. Try and, if know, you're a fan of animation, this ain't the show for you. Avoid it, like the plague. This was made by Filmation, mm. who were probably best known to our generation for He-Man. Yeah. Yeah, um, I, and they I, were I, I was cheap. trying to think, where, where do I recognise that style of animation? Mm, He-Man, cheap. that's it. And the thing is, so you've got eyes, apart from the pupils, the same colour as the rest of the skin. Yeah. And you've good. got, like, they'll talk and literally their head will move once or their eyes will move. Um, on so its, everything else is static. but there's Yeah, it ran for 22 episodes of Which, about ha- half the length of the full series. But it had most of the cast working it's on also, it. But a lot of the script is also quite exposition heavy. There's a lot of puzzle exposition going on, which I struggle with a lot of the time. Um, it's... Um, but otherwise, it's, it's, it's interesting. And it put a few things into canon. Uh, yeah. Tiberius, as his yes. middle name. Mm. We, we had James T. Kirk, but it was never put in canon what it was. In fact, he's James R. Kirk in Where No Man Is. Yeah, gone. the Menagerie, yeah. See, James, I was like, why um, is James R. not James T. And then um, the other thing is we've, we've got Christopher Pike as captain for a while. The very last episode of the animated series is called The Counterclock Incident. Which is kind of a reverse of the deadly years. That's that's a TOS episode where they all get older, and only Shatner's hairline comes forward. But there you go. <laughs> Everyone else gets older. He gets more hair. Um, but yeah, they get old. Well, in this they get younger. But it's a retirement. They're taking the first captain of the Enterprise on a sort of retirement journey. Uh, Robert April, who's turning seventy-five and retiring. So that puts into the timeline that effectively if you take it as canon that kirk was the third captain of the enterprise it's okay you do have people like um, dc fontana writing episodes and she wrote episodes for the original series mm. but the animation is extremely cheap and a little bit off the top. yeah I, I think that's, that's that's the unfortunate thing because i think there are there, there are some really nice episodes in there um there's one that, that could vaguely be important or time which is one called yesteryear about um the uh, the earlier years of Spock when he lived on Vulcan, um, which basically involves uh, Spock going back in time to uh, to see his 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 younger self and helping him out. Um, and there's another one I really enjoy um, called Albatross, which is basically about um, Doctor McCoy being arrested by an alien race because of supposedly. Um, he uh, he created a a virus or something that that kind of wiped out a lot of people there and responsible for a lot of a lot of people dead 
Um, and it's it's kind of that was a really interesting episode, especially for a cartoon. Um, and it was nice that even though this was animated and put towards a younger audience, that it still kind of managed to kind of keep some of the themes of Star Trek, certainly potentially more than uh, some of the later uh, media. Yeah, I think that might be a clue as to why it didn't have that long a run. Because yeah. it's a cartoon on a Saturday morning that really is over the head of a lot of kids. But uh, it's not bad. It's worth checking out if you can get past the animation. So that was uh, the 70s. Obviously, we're going to skip the films or the start of the films now because obviously TOS is relevant because there's six films with that crew. So, yeah, obviously the T- TOS is, is vital because it's the original Star Trek and also half of the films we're going to look at have all or most of this crew. Uh, four of the films have uh, the Next Generation crew. So Star Trek The Next Generation, uh, I guess certainly Becca and Chris, you've seen more of this. I would want to say in passing where it's been on like, TV like after school, but again, I never really watched it um, just because it wasn't my thing. So I, I just, I can't really, I mean, I'm more familiar with it as a show, but I couldn't tell you what happens in any episode at all. Like, um... If that makes so, I, I, I'm not, I'm not, I can never say I've sat down and watched an episode. That's going to be interesting. We've got a few of those to go through that we can maybe give you some hints uh, to watch before we get to the actual films. But again, I, I would say we'll talk about it maybe when we get to the films in a, in a little while. But certainly, I think the characters are are less well served by the films than perhaps the original crew are. Mm. Becca, what's your memories of the Next Generation and, and your knowledge of it? Yeah, I probably have seen quite a few i think when, when i come what i'm going to do my plan is obviously work our way through the the original series films and then when it comes to it, i'll watch the relevant episodes for the next generation films but i think i'll probably i'll come to them again and i'll be like oh yeah i have seen this one i have seen that you know and it'll, it'll come back to me so um i'm probably a bit more familiar um with the next generation than i am with the original series um i probably have seen them but again it's been several years so i'm looking Was forward to seeing them again enjoyed? Yeah, definitely. I, I think, well, Patrick Stewart's a legend in whatever he does. And the fact that I think he's sort of more famous now, certainly within like the last, well, within popular culture, just he's so, he's, he's really gaming, he's really up for it, like parodying sort of the typical roles that, that he would usually have. My favourite when he's on extras. Yeah, li- literally classic, up for a laugh. Really, you know, you, really uh, Honestly, if he was around now, before you get your nicks back on, he'd see me. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought how random that joke was. It just like it didn't seem to make any sense. Like he just it was just completely out of nowhere. He's... It's hilarious. He's, he's ready to play against type as well. I think yeah. that's just you know he's sending up all these brilliant roles that he's played, and obviously he's a well, he's, you know sort of like theater, he comes from the theatre background as well, doesn't he? So um, what's the word I'm looking for? Thespian. That's the word. Um, but I'm, I'm probably more familiar with that, and I think I um, you know I, I enjoy it a bit more as well. Um, it's more relatable, but that's not to say that the original series is, is bad by any means. But it's not. This is um, your Star Trek. But yeah, it's kind of the one that you, you sort of grew up with. Yeah. That I'm this more is, familiar this with, is my Star Trek too, and I, I yeah. think that that's largely because that's not necessarily going to translate to when we talk about the films. I love TOS, I really do. If, if I love both of these series, uh, certainly more than than anything we're going to talk about afterwards. I think Patrick Stewart is my gateway drug. I think I've got a bit of. Um, he's my Robert Darby, Chris. <laughs> um, yeah, so um, I, yeah, a bit of a man crush on. Yeah, definitely. It's the bolt head, isn't it? But he, he is what I think a captain should be. That doesn't mean Kirk isn't. And I think we'll talk about this, particularly when we get to the reboots, that a lot of the popular culture 
drawing of Kirk is a bit of a parody of what he actually is. Mm. And certainly they're almost mirrors of each other in that uh, Patrick Stewart, and we'll, go, we'll come to it in an episode I'm going to talk about in a minute, was a bit of a Jack the Lad at the Academy and a natural mm. talent, uh, but becomes a very serious man as a captain. And Kirk is kind of the reverse, but not literally in that he doesn't become a clown, but he, he becomes much more willing to break the rules where he was very studious at university. And again, we'll talk about it both in The Wrath of Khan and in the reboot, the J.J. Abrams film, because the way they characterise the Kobayashi Maru is, I don't think, what Kirk would have been at that point. But we'll, no. get, to, we'll get to that. Certainly, though, um, my general impressions on it, and we'll come to some episodes with me after, after Charlie tells us a little bit about his experiences with TNG, but I think the crew on the TV show are better served than the original series in that, I know, Chris, you said that, you know, it's a stronger crew, and maybe it's a more iconic crew yeah. in that Sulu has a greater pop culture awareness than perhaps Troy. But at the same time, the next generation was much more of an ensemble across seven of them instead of three of them. I just think you got like, who who have you got? I mean, there's nothing necessarily wrong with them. You have, I mean, you have Riker who's okay, but, you know, he's he's not exactly like rebel rebel type of like dashing hero. No, he's chief of staff, really. Although he is a bit of a womanizer, he is the he is supposed to be the Kirk of his crew. Yeah, Worf has obviously been in more episodes of Star Trek than any other character. Yeah, I would would say the best characters outside outside of uh, Picard is either Data or Worf. Data's Data's as iconic or almost as iconic as Spock. I'm probably not as because I think Spock would have more name recognition. But certainly, you do get data episodes. You do get wharf episodes. You even get the odd Troy episode or uh, Doctor Crusher. Much more than mm. the original series, which was about those three. And specifically, <clears throat> so many episodes with Kirk end with Kirk having a fight. So I do think they spread the load better. But I think when we get to the films, I think this. I don't know if it's name recognition or whatever, but they're not quite cinematic, are they? Yeah, possibly that's it. I, I don't really want to see the next generation rebooted, but I I do love it and I love and I think I'll talk about what I love through the episodes I talk about. Charlie, I I think it's easy for me as someone who's got the original Enterprise tattooed on him and, and is very much a Kirk guy and all the rest of it to assume you don't like TNG, but that's not quite the case, is it? No, my my memory of of, of TNG, my earliest memory is um, nearly giving myself first-degree burns because I dropped a cup of tea on my leg after seeing it, getting so excited at seeing an advert for it on BBC Two when it was about to come on. Um, I'm, I'm a big fan of TNG. as much a fan of it as, as TOS, but that's kind that's of more about goes without though, saying. Yeah, yeah ab- absolutely. And I think but, TNG... But I, I've read people, Charlie, who literally cannot understand how somebody would prefer Picard. And I don't think you're quite in that camp. I think you could understand why people might prefer TNG. Oh, absolutely. And I think certainly, um, I mean, Picard is, is a wonderful captain. And the way his his character was drawn up and developed, and certainly the way Patrick Stewart has inhabited it, is such a sheer part of the huge success of uh, Next Generation. 
and uh, and how it's kind of sat in the canon of Star Trek. Uh, yeah, he's a very different captain, and uh, certainly there's a lot more kind of age there. But like you said, there's a more, there's some stuff that's come from behind the scenes that we find out in episodes like the one you're going to talk about, which I know exactly what you mean, even from forgetting the list you gave us, that uh, we, we know what's come before, and we can kind of, we see that the kind of storied history from that, yeah. but kind of Picard's intelligence and Picard's less reliant on other people than he is himself. Yeah. Whereas with Kirk, you had the three, you don't have that in Next Generation. Um, no, but having said that, the way the Next Generation episodes tend to be structured, he does have a lot more sort of conferences. Yeah, basically. absolutely. And that, and that's the thing, because, like you said, because it ran for seven seasons, mm-hmm. there was a lot more ability to explore the facets of the crew, not only just the, the, the main crew, but also the kind of peripheral ones as well. And also, and one of the things I really, really love about it, and I certainly love about DS9 as well, is the way it kind of ex- expanded Star Trek in such a huge way. And yeah, the, the, just, the, the Enterprise in the original series feels a much more lonely ship than TNG. TNG, yeah. they always seem to be going to meet somebody. Yeah, and absolutely, and, and the Enterprise, the, the Galaxy class, the 1701D, as they call it, um, is is a ship that's got families. And it's, it's a gigantic ship, and it's got all these a load of families and all different crew members from all walks of life. And everyone's kind of doing all kind of different things on there. So from there, from just from that ship alone, you get to see, um, like with Worf as well, you get to see and learn a lot more about the Klingons. And they go from the kind of the warrior race that we originally uh, were shown them to be, um, especially in terms of how they interact with the Federation. You learn a lot more about the Romulans and there's the Cardassians and certainly the Vulcans as well. And uh, also Data as well, going through him and his journey. Um, I mean, like, it's really funny that Spock's modus operandi is to, uh, to suppress his emotion, whereas Data is very much wanting emotion, wanting to be what, what Spock rejects. There's a scene in an episode I'm going to mention in a while that covers... Exactly that point. Uh, they they are analog. He is an analog of Spock, yeah. And we do get a bit more of that as we go to some of the later series where they go a bit greatest hits. Yeah. But at this stage, he's just different enough. And Brent Spiner's fantastic in the part. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, it's one of the biggest disappointments of the films, but we'll come to it. Yeah, I certainly can't fault the actors. I mean, I kind of agree that all of the the, the characters. Maybe not some my, my not some people I find that interesting, mm. but uh, I, I, I like the interaction. I certainly enjoy. I like Councillor Troy's role. Um, and I think dates the show because she's oh absolutely because it's, it's a real kind of yeah kind of eighties yeah. concept. Not that there's a councillor um, on the ship. I think we might expect that in a workplace now. Something that we'd all need, but yeah. uh, I suppose with with her abilities. And her empath- empathetic abilities, but also um, there's a lot of episodes that seem like filler to me. But there's a lot of episodes that are amazing. On our, I think I think one thing I can say for the next generation, rather than for the original series, there are there are certainly episodes in the next generation that are all better than the films they made. Whereas I don't think I could say that for. Um, 
the original series? I think my favourite original crew stuff tends to be some of the films, mm. um, as much as I like the series. That might be the dated element to it, that, that just the whole product way things were written and, and produced changed a lot. I mean, you didn't have overlapping dialogue in those days. The camera would point at someone, he'd say yeah. something. You'd get the reverse shot of somebody else, they'd say something. And it was kind of a lot more like a play. Yeah, so I think mainly my love of, of exploration comes from expanding the universe and Picard as a character. Federation is a big place at this point, and, and the Klingon. Those of you who, who maybe haven't watched a lot of Star Trek, but have watched the uh, remake of Battlestar Galactica. Battlestar Galactica, the showrunner and writer of most of that was Ronald D. Moore. He was a writer uh, on The Next Generation, and he did most of the Klingon episodes. So he's responsible for most of that lore. I'm just going to name some episodes now that I just think are a bit of a background. Now, it's a bit less important, but almost more important, in that the characters, because they had longer, are better drawn in The Next Generation. I'm not saying they're better characters, but I could sit and tell you more about Troy than I could tell you about Sulu, based on what we saw in the TV show. I I think um, TNG just uh, came at the right time to do Star Trek Justice. Really, because I think because back at, back then they didn't really have the the budget. Everything was still a little bit campy, a bit ropey. Yeah. Now, um, I mean, I think it was. I don't. I think Next Generation probably wouldn't get off the ground had uh, the original series existed. So I think it, it still needed Kirk. It still needed the the old show. But by that time, it came to uh, the was it was it late eighties, eighty seven to ninety four. Eight, yeah. Um, so by that time... We didn't had, get it here till about 90, but yeah. They had like a certain more maturity. There was more respect for the series cause like, because like they, they, they knew there was an absolute fan base there. Uh, and they had like more of a budget. They, they had a bit more of a, a sensibility to And it, also, to, to we'll, it. we'll talk about this during the films, but Roddenberry's influence started to wane after the mm. first couple of years. And as important as he is to Star Trek, I will... and And... There's accuracy in the phrase Roddenberry's vision because, you know, the, the, the working together and all the things we've talked about during Charlie's choice of episodes. But at the same time, it's one of those phrases I'd happily never hear again because he's talked about like he's this unimpeachable fucking God. And the fact is, he was a nightmare to work with. He had a lot of ideas that didn't really work uh, in terms of how you tell drama. And most of the best films have nothing to do with him. Most of the best TNG has nothing to do with him. So what was um, Roddenberry's vision? like? How did that contradict the, the Trek that we know now? It's not so much that it contradicted it. It's that... I mean, certainly Roddenberry would never have written Deep Space Nine. No. And we'll come to Deep Space Nine in a while. But he didn't really believe in conflict between crew members. Yeah. And they struggled to get... When Roddenberry was still around... There are episodes I could point to. I don't think there are any in this list. But there are episodes that they went to him with the script and he'd kick it out, saying no, because they're they're arguing with each other. And because I like, know, like, they don't argue with but each other But that's how drama days. works. Yeah, that, that is drama. And, and a lot of the early episodes, yeah. all the Twee Wesley stuff, well, Wesley crushes a young boy on the cruise about 15 when the show starts, and he saves the ship every week. And he's like working on the bridge and it's pathetic and it's a bad idea. And I feel sorry for Will Wheaton, actually, because he was so young and he's quite cool now, actually, Will Wheaton. He's a bit of a legend. Yeah, but 
the thing is, Gene Roddenberry's middle name is Wesley. It was a bit of personal like wish fulfillment in there. Uh, the Motion Picture is a film we'll talk about in a few weeks' time. And I'm not going to say anything particularly bad about it, particularly. I, I know Charlie's fond of it, but it's, it's very self-serious. And I think Roddenberry was very self-serious in a lot of ways. And I just think he, he was great for setting up the universe, but a lot of the best stuff doesn't involve him. It sounds to me how um, he, it was like he had a good idea, but I think his failing was that he doesn't collaborate with people because I think he he had his idea and it was like, oh, no, 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 you can't touch his idea rather than working with people, which, which kind of contradicts his old vision anyway. It's all like, oh, we're, we're working together. <laughs> no, it's mine. <laughs> and when you Get watch, off, it's mine. Some of the best episodes in the first series, and Charlie knows the original series better than I do, but Gene Coon, Charlie... Mm. Gene Coon, vital in some of the very best episodes, burnt out after like half season or a season and a half or whatever yeah. it was. I think I think Roddenberry was very much like George Lucas. Yeah, yeah. Um, that he had the ideas there, um, but um, when he had when his vision went unfiltered, um, then uh, you uh, you don't always get and and yeah, his his Star Trek his vision of Star Trek was very kind of utopian um, and like you said without conflict and without money and things like that which is kind of weirdly contradicted later on um, yeah. yeah there's there's bits where it contradicts itself it does um, it's not very consistent with stuff so. no no it's, uh, but it um, the kind of what people look what people think about now is as the ethos of star trek is kind of a mix between um Vodemary's early kind of ideas what became of what the TOS um, was, and then what became of what TNG was really kind of a mix of it all. Um, and then, in, but it, I mean, yeah, it all started back then with the original series. But like Dave said, Roddenberry is certainly the originator. But where you have, for instance, The Empire Strikes Back, where you have people taking George Lucas's material and elevating it. Um, it's uh, the only thing with Roddenberry is that he um, tried to do his best to take as much of the credit as possible. Even going to the point where he um, he exercised a clause in the contract um, for the music. It was Alexander Courage who wrote the music for the main title for Star Trek. Legend, the legendary composer of Superman IV, The Quest for Peace. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Although that is... Well, that is a good score, and yeah, he 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 worked a lot with Jerry Goldsmith and John Williams as an orchestrator. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, because Superman Four has several themes written by John Williams yeah. that were given by him to Courage, but that's an, another thing entirely. Um, but what happened is is that Courage signed his contract, and then Roddenberry activated a clause which um, basically says that any uh, royalties from that. Go to him for fifty. Go to anyone. Fifty percent of them go to anyone who wrote lyrics. So what happened is Roddenberry wrote lyrics for the Star Trek theme. Um, they were never officially recorded, and there was never any version originally that went out with the lyrics on. But because he had written those lyrics, he was down as the co-composer of the Star Trek theme, and because of that, got half of the royalties from um, from it. That's cheeky, isn't it? Well, t- yeah, there's going to be plenty to say about Rod and Bree when we get to the motion picture and the Wrath yeah. of Khan because mm. the motion picture is very much his. Wrath of Khan very much isn't. 
but there's a whole story leading to the making of the motion picture and that will tell us we'll talk a bit more about about Roddenberry there just to run through some uh, next gen episodes that might be of interest to people though some of them I've chosen just as well there's a run of a few of them that I think are relevant to the films and and I'll just go through them Uh, nothing from the first series because the first series is crap um, the second series uh, coincided with a writer's strike. You've got um, episodes there that are repurposed. There's one called The Child, which is the opening episode of that series, and it was actually written for Star Trek Phase 2, which is a concept we'll talk about next week. Uh, I'll explain what that was, but it wasn't even written for this this crew. But there was a couple of episodes in this series that are very key to what this show is. Uh, the first one I'm going to name is The Measure of a Man. The Measure of a Man is all about Data's right to choose, about Data's status, i.e. as a sentient being, because he's an android, and also his right to choose. Is he property? Is he the property of Starfleet? And it comes down to a very shrunken down court case where Picard and Riker are are instructed to be on opposite sides of each other. Riker doesn't want to be. Uh, because they want to do some te- some guy wants to dismantle data to run some tests on him to create more like him. Charlie, what did you make of this episode? It's one of the best, absolutely. It's nice because it comes kind of early in the second season. Um, so you've had the first season where people is is it's just kind of universally known as as something to kind of forget, and then you have episodes like this which, again, go back to the reality and the um, philosophy of Star Trek as a, as a really kind of hard science fiction show sometimes. And going back to be able to having these big ideas about people and about things like androids, people like androids, how they fit into the Star Trek universe, how they're seen and how other people are seen, and certainly allegorical in in terms of um, slavery, yeah, exactly. Um, it's also the importance of this episode to the films is very slight. Uh, I mean, had there been a data type character in the TOS, this could have been a TOS episode in much the same way that Balance of Terror could have been a TNG episode. Yeah, it, 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 this is for all I've just said about Roddenberry. This feels like a Roddenberry idea. Mm. Uh, whether it is, I'm not sure, but it, it it certainly feels like an idea. The films are very heavy either in main a plot or b plot on data because data was so popular so i think things that revolve around him are useful this tells you a bit as a viewer if you've never watched tng what data is what the issues are around him and how he how the writers sort of cheat a little bit on his feelings because he does feel sort of uh but it's a terrific episode it won a hugo award patrick stewart's fantastic in it uh, everyone's fantastic in it, actually. And it's one of the few early episodes that I would recommend. And also showed Picard's um, kind of slight womanising. From his younger days. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> because he meets someone that he has undoubtedly had. Um, but it's a ter- it's only a small part. It's almost, thr- I don't know, it's only a small part. I shouldn't have said that. I'm sure it's a, hu- I'm sure it's a huge part. <laughs> Massive. But it's, um, yeah, but it's only a small part of the show. Yeah. I'll have to get him on the show. I'll have to tweet him as well. What, to come on and describe how big his part is? <laughs> okay, fair enough. Have either of you seen this? Probably, somewhere somewhere along <laughs> the line. I'm pretty sure I have. Vague memories of it, but no, it's, it's quite good. Because um, obviously, following on from Star Trek, just to kind of 
divert obviously um Red Dwarf was another big sci-fi kind of show I grew up with in the nineties. And obviously the character of Crichton is the same obviously the same sort of thing, isn't it? Sort of Android, you know, wanted to break free of his programming and develop all these humanoid um emotions. But no, I think I do remember this one, um, from Trek and it is really well written actually. I enjoyed it quite a lot and it's um you got a lot of ideas around like laws of robotics and that as well, which I think is really interesting. Um but yeah, this one I vaguely remember. Some of them I do, some of them I don't, but this one I definitely yeah. When it when Star Trek gets it right, it's entertaining. When it gets it wrong, it's heavy-handed and preachy. And this is very much the former. The second Next Generation film is about uh, creatures called the Borg. It's a collective hive consciousness. Now, by the time the film came along, they'd been a bit defanged in a lot of ways. But when they first came along, this was some of the tensest TV I'd ever seen because they just looked unbeatable. The first episode is called Q-Who. This is the second season episode. And you're going to have to give it a bit of a pass because I haven't named any previous Q episodes. Q is kind of an omnipresent, omnipotent being from a species that are the same. They does, can be anywhere. Does he have do any anything. gadgets? He doesn't have any gadgets. No, he's he, still he Bond's mission before the show. Go on. Yeah, he <laughs> does. Yeah, he does. Uh, he, he keeps telling off. Enough of the womanizing Picard, you know. Uh, no. so Q, bring it Q, back in pristine condition but Q is this is like his third or fourth appearance by the time we get to this episode it's not so like Q, really. just give it that pass that you're going to see this omnipotent being who can put people anywhere play tricks on them all that sort of thing Q wants to join the Enterprise and again that is partly dealt with in a previous episode again give it that pass the key point is though that he flings them into another quadrant of the galaxy it would take them years to get home. I think it's something like 25 years to get home. They're actually in the Delta Quadrant, where Voyager later is set. And uh, they encounter this cube full of these drones that can adapt to any weapon you've got and will make you, assimilate you into their hive. And frankly, they just look unbeatable. They kill several of the crew. uh, And eventually, the only way they're saved is Q gets what he wants to hear from Picard and sends them home. So we've been introduced to this being that we know is going to be unbelievably difficult to be. A season and a half later, it's the season three closer and the season four opener. You've got the best of both worlds. The best of both worlds is better than the Borg film by some distance. It's brilliant. And it it actually is like the rematch with the Borg. And I'm not going to say too much more about it here, but this and the next episode, uh, uh, th- this episode is particularly key to being introduced to this particular antagonist. Something happens to Picard that's very, very key, but it's it's also, at this point, they look unbeatable. So it's really tense. And not only that, it goes across the end of one season and the beginning of the next, and there were rumours about Patrick Stewart's contract. So there are things that happen in the show that you think, shit, he might actually die. Um, now, the fact that they go on for another few years in films, obviously he didn't, but we genuinely thought, how the fuck are they going to get out of this? And the second half of the show is not as good as the first, frankly, because you've set up something you can't really resolve easily. But it's fantastic t- TV, still amongst my favourite Star Trek. And the very next episode the is called Family. They're on sort of shore leave back on Earth because... The Enterprise has taken a bit of a kicking, so it's having refits. 
and Picard goes home to Le Bar, France, because Picard, despite sounding like an Englishman, is French. And he meets his long, long, long estranged brother and his, uh, and his son, René. Now, that's relevant for generations. When we get to the first film, the, those characters recur there. And also all the Borg stuff is relevant to the very for the film that follows. But this film deals with the effect on Picard of what's happened to him and his crew in the previous episodes. And you'd be wise in terms of enjoying First Contact to ignore anything afterwards in terms of the Borg and just take it from there. But family just sees a man stripped down to his core. Charlie, this episode, that run of episodes, your thoughts? Absolutely. I mean, Q who? Is great because yeah, the Borg are terrifying. We're used to the obviously the Klingons, the Romulans, which are these very kind of angry, emotional races, very much like a reflection of of humanity. But the Borg come along, and obviously this is very important, is that they were all one. They're the Borg collective. And the fact that they're all acting as one, they're all linked through this hive mind. Um, so this like a like a hub. Um, so they all have the same information in this, in, in, instantly. So when they adapt to kind of weapons and things like that, they can all do it instantly. And what they do to the ship, I mean, there's the famous bit for me in in Q Who is always a bit where they actually where they just carve a slice out of the deck of the the Enterprise's primary hull, the saucer section. And lift it out, and it's several decks. Yeah, and it's it's terrifying, the power they have. And then when the the best of both worlds comes along, and it's kind of the inevitability that they had all kind of been thinking about, where the Borg have finally reached Federation space and are going straight for Earth. And dealing with that... And how the crew deals with that, how Picard deals with that, um, and how they deal with fighting this collective. And basically, it's all about how, about the human individuality and the human spirit versus um, the hive mind and how that plays out. And uh, and again, part of the, the Star Trek philosophy of humanity elevating itself and bettering itself, um, and um, which is something that is completely fucked over when you get to first contact, which is just an unfortunate byproduct of the, uh, the Wrath of Khan effect. But then you get Family, which is a beautiful episode, um, because, yeah, it's just all about reflection and like we said earlier where tng gets seven seasons and trs gets three you you're able to have these episodes you don't just go next to the straight mission straight to the the next mission you're able to have these episodes where you see the psychological effect that these kind of events i mean especially what picard went through goes through in the uh, in the best of both worlds um, and going from that and the family he's got on the Enterprise versus his actual family that, like Dave said, he's estranged from. You've got Robert, his brother, and his nephew, Rene, um, and uh, and the relationship that kind of goes from that. And it's just a beautifully written episode and is, again, so much of what Star Trek is about beyond spaceship battles and action and things like that I've, I've seen him in first contact but i was aware that of they are like the the main show baddies i mean i, I understand that they're essentially like like a dark twisted version of what 
the Enterprise, uh, not not Enterprise, the Federation actually is in terms of like um, bringing everyone together, but rather like assimilating them to the in the worst one. kind of way. Yeah, I, I think if you watch nothing else from my list, Charlie's right on family, but obviously you could take First Contact as the aftermath if you liked. So I would watch Q yeah. in the best of both worlds before anything else on the list uh, because it's directly relevant to one film. But if you throw in family as well, that's relevant to another film. The next one I've named is Unification. Mm. Another t- I'm cheating a bit with these because three of mine are two-parters. Unification is relevant, believe it or not, not only to Nemesis, where we get a bit more about Romulus, and the Romulans and the Remans, but also it's relevant to the reboot because this double episode has Spock in it. Spock is a Vulcan. They live a lot longer than humans. So he's an older gentleman by this point, but far from ancient years later. So he's, he's around in the TNG timeline and he's working uh, sort of undercover on Romulus. And that's all I'm really going to say about it, but it's relevant when we come to the reboot. It's relevant to learning a bit more about relations with Rom between Romulus and the the Romulans and the Federation, and also any excuse to see uh, Spock again. And also, there is a scene between Spock and Data, which does highlight the differences between them. He is he's chosen Vulcan logic, so he's chosen to suppress his human side. Whereas Data's biggest wish in the world is to be human. He's Pinocchio. So great, great episode. Great double. Well, a good double episode. I don't think it's great, but I think it's useful to watch it. Uh, I certainly think the next two I'm going to name are great episodes. The Inner Light is the next episode. Um, a lot of this is Patrick Stewart's favorite episode. Uh, the Enterprise sees a, a sort of derelict craft stroke, but it's more of a beacon in space. Uh, It makes contact with Picard and knocks him out. And he wakes up on a planet as a guy called Cayman. And he's got a wife and he's just, they've just, well, you've lost your memory. And we don't find out for a while, but we do find out fairly early in the episode that it's effectively hallucination. He's still on the ship, but you see him live an entire life on this planet as, as another guy. And he starts off wanting to find his ship and wondering where it was and swearing blind it was real. And over time, he has a family, the, the one thing Picard never really gets in the show. And it's a dying race's way of passing on their story because there's a drought, and it's it, they're using Picard to pass on their story. And it's a beautiful episode. And occasionally you'll see Picard, pick, I think you might even see it in Generations, he picks up a flute, and, it, and he got it from this race. Yeah. Um, I think possibly if you were to poll most fans of Next Generation, which is their favourite episode, it would be this one. Um, and it, it's certainly a, a wonderful, wonderful episode and absolutely heartbreaking, really. Something that Star Trek is, is great at doing, we're examining um, the, uh, the lives of the crew and examining Picard and his lack of family and what it's like to be the captain, the father of that spaceship, all the time without ever really having that life. Again, when you take the caricatures of the two captains, if you like, Kirk's all piss and vinegar and, and Picard's like, you know, um, this stoic kind of cold, you know, uptight Englishman. 
French as a character, <laughs> but he's play, he's played as a, but he is an Englishman. In, in, he's in, more by the book as an English Born in France but raised in England. How kind of him! That's like. the one. <laughs> well, I know, but obviously you know. But I mean, they do still. When he says shit, he says maid as well mm. in the show and stuff like that. But the French heritage coming through. As I say, it's well, one that, of the that's probably like a cheeky excuse to you know slip in some swearing there. Yeah. Um, yeah, past the senses. Tapestry is uh, a season seven episode, I think, or season six is one of the two. I think it's very late in the six series, actually. It's another Q episode. Picard has a artificial heart. He's got a, a sort of a, an electric heart, if you like, or a mechanical heart, rather. And it's because when he was at the Academy, he got into a fight with a group called the Norsicans, who are just basically violent, another violent warrior race. And he got stabbed through his original heart. And he was saved and all the rest of it. Well, he gets the chance to undo that mistake. And you see what Picard would have been without being that person at the Academy. And I just think it's a useful episode for showing that not only is it a very good episode, but it actually shows that he is a man of passion and he is a man of discipline, a bit like Spock suppressing his emotions. He has matured past much of this, but a lot of it was realizing he had to sort of calm that side of himself down if he wanted to A, survive and B, thrive in in the Federation. So I just think it's a terrific episode for a bit of background on Picard. Which which is the episode where um, with the, with Picard with the four lights. That's a double episode called Chain of Command, which I didn't think to put in here actually. But I, again, you can't watch everything. There's 178 episodes of the Next Generation, so it, it, it's you know what do you pick? Yeah. Um, certainly in terms of an acting performance, it's amazing because he's 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 tortured during that. Yeah. That's season six as well. Um, and that that's good background on the Cardassians, but the Cardassians aren't really in any of the films, so no. I, I left it out. The final one I named is the final double episode, uh, All Good Things, which I only watched myself uh, yesterday, I think. I think I remember um, this one as well. I'm not going to say very much about it. I, I've li- it's a double episode. It's uh, I only pick it because it tells us where we leave this crew before we pick them up a few months later in the films. Um, I love All Good Things. I think it's fantastic. It's not only a great ending to the series, but again, it's it's an expansion of showing what Star Trek really is and the idea of, of kind of elevating yourself and bettering yourself and furthering humanity for that. And the kind of, again, the, the scenes between Q and Picard um, are just extraordinary. And certainly at the end when Picard kind of sees things in in a certain clarity um, in terms of having to resolve things um, is just brilliant writing and uh, yeah it's miles better than any of the films yeah absolutely and also um, the way it leaves that crew there's a little bit of development because he's we've talked about Picard distancing himself from people and he was liked and respected I mean he, he he would probably call himself friends with some of his crew, but he he has to keep a distance. And by the end, we're starting to see that just break down a touch with mm. his senior crew, and it's a nice place to leave it. So those are the two key series to like look at bits of if you do want to do anything, because all the films are based on those two crews. But obviously, there are other series. So yeah, we can here we can discuss a little bit about the series following up from that. So you've got these Space Nine, Voyager, and Enterprise. Um, I'm a bit. Presidious, so let's go go through them one by one. 
So you've got Deep Space Nine, which is from 93 to 1999. Oh my god, I feel old. Yeah, this also ran for seven series. Um, it was kind of set, obviously, on a space station, Deep Space Nine, rather than on a spaceship. Um, and it, again, it was, it was very different from the two previous series because it was more kind of serialised rather than Monster of the Week or Issue of the Week. Um, but have you guys seen this? What, what do you reckon to it? I Personally, I've seen like one or two episodes, but I'm, these three series, I must admit, I'm very weak on. I've seen hardly any of a few episodes here and there. Um, but how about yourselves? Is Deep Space Nine set at the same time as Next Gen? It overlaps. Yeah, yeah just literally the few years after it. I think they all kind of follow on from each other, don't they? Deep Space Nine's Voyager and then Enterprise, which is the prequel, I guess. They'd actually sta- they'd standardised star dates by that point. So you mm-hmm. can actually tell where you are by the star date in time, and yeah, they all they all overlap or follow on from each other. Not Enterprise, yeah. obviously. Yeah, because no. all, all the the series. I, mean, I, I don't know about Enterprise, but um, Deep Space Nine and Voyager were introduced with elements of the previous series. So um, the uh, Voyager starts about aboard Deep Space Nine, and you see Quark, uh, the 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 Ferengi bartender. And uh, people like that, but the uh, Deep Space Nine actually has a much deeper kind of role, and uh, actually begins at the uh, the Battle of Wolf Three Five Nine, which is a thing that a battle that we see the aftermath of in the Best of Both Worlds. There's basically where the Borg has been smashing its way through all the Federation fleet to get to Earth in that episode. One of the uh, the ships that it fights at Wolf Three Five Nine is a ship called the USS Saratoga, and the uh, and the, the second in command on that ship, who eventually takes it over before um, it going, is um, Commander Cisco, and then he is given eventually given the uh, the okay uh, or the assignment to uh, to go and um, be a commander of Deep Space Nine. His so wife because, dies on that ship. Exactly. His wife, he he's, lives with his wife and son, and he has to leave his wife behind as she dies on that ship. Now, Aww. because of that, and because of that, see what's happened, there is a very clear line between him and Picard and how he sees Picard because of what Picard was in that episode and what those actions were as an indirect result of Picard. And that's that gives it a really interesting start. I'm actually I'm a huge fan of DS9, and in terms of the if I'm ranking the series, it would come after TOS for me. The thing with Deep Space Nine, like the next generation, it took a bit of a while to get going, and also because it's so different than any other series. It's not about going out and exploring in a spaceship. It's about people coming to this station from all sorts of places and exploring them from there. Um, so you're stuck here on this station. Deep Space Nine is what used to be a Cardassian station, and basically it was built in orbit of the planet Bajor when the Cardassians occupied Bajor. So when the Bajorans occupation, when the Cardassian occupation of Bajor ended, the, the station was abandoned and was taken over by the Federation to uh, have a foothold in that area and to be able to help help Bajor sort it out. So you've got a mix of Federation and Bajoran officers and people on the uh, on the ship. And the Bajorans as well are a very, very religious race. And there's a lot of religious aspects that come into this show that are actually really, really cleverly um, kept in right to the end of the show. 
So all through these seven seasons, it does take a bit of time to uh, to get to get going, and it certainly well, like like Dave said earlier, Roddenberry would hate it because there is so much conflict between these characters, because the Bajorans and the Federations don't necessarily trust each other. Bajorans don't want them there, so all these new characters, all these people coming together. And just, there's just conflict all the time. There's money involved. These these characters are not the kind of the thing with Next Generation is is the characters were some of them maybe quite quite squeaky clean, whereas that is certainly not the case here. Basically, it wasn't until the end of the second season where they introduced a race called the Dominion, and uh, the Dominion basically the re- one of the reasons. Deep Space Nine is where it is, is because a wormhole is discovered that takes it from the Alpha Quadrant to the Gamma Quadrant. A lot of the kind of exploring that they do is they can go on the little shuttles they've got and they go through the wormhole and uh, find places in the Gamma Quadrant. Now, there's a there's a, a, a race called the Dominion who don't like that they're doing this. So basically what they do is they start capturing Federation ships and that kind of thing that have uh, have come in and uh, eventually they we meet them in this episode called the Gem Hadar which is the finale of the second season um, and the Gem Hadar are basically a genetically engineered shock troopers um, very violent very very good at what they do killing which is killing people and very arrogant and they're just absolutely vicious and they're to carry out the Dominion's orders, and um, basically, um, this is just explored in one of the later episodes, episode called Hippocratic Oath, is that the Dominion contr- control them through a drug. So basically, they have them hooked on drugs from birth, and then they control them with them. So if they get out of line, they withdraw this drug from them, and it's kind of this horrible way they control them that we actually see these vicious people and we see kind of like a uh, a sympathetic side to them but anyway but but this whole thing and the introduction of the Jim Hadar begins an arc that starts from season three to season seven of absolute war which is something Star Trek kind of it does the whole spaceship battle thing and we have it as kind of action interludes but this is full-on all-out war between the Federation and the Dominion and the Cardassians and the Romulans and the Klingons and all of the things, the politics and the interpersonal relationships that go between them. And it's just the way that arc is just played out. Um, Because you've got shapeshifters, nobody trusts anybody. Exactly. exactly. You've also got Cardassians on on the station with the the race they want subjugated. Yeah. So everywhere you look, there is complete massive distrust. Yeah. And there is, yeah, there's, there's lots of scenes where people kind of have their blood tests and things like that to make sure they aren't shapeshifters. And it's very much about trust. And uh, and there's some really harrowing scenes uh, where Captain Sisko has to blood test his own father to make sure that he's not a changeling. And it's a really, really harrowing scene. And again, really kind of nails home this sense of, of distrust and, and what has been engineered by the Dominion, who kind of were kind of, I guess, took over the, from the Borg as, as being the kind of the all-powerful race. And there's, there's a few like kind of beautiful, just pure science fiction episodes. There's one called The Visitor, where... Um, Which Captain I try Sister, at. Yeah, it's, it is. It is a really good series. It's not that relevant for what we're about to cover, but it's totally no. worth investigation. 
Yeah. It sounds like a lot of it's still relevant for our times as well, obviously, written some years ago now. Much, but, I mean, yeah. it, it, you can see the genesis of where TV's gone. Because sure. it finishes like a couple of years before like 24 came along. Yeah. And you've got arcs, you've got suicide bombers, you've got yeah. all sorts of, th- and that, that creeping distrust everyone's got that TV hadn't done before this point. No, it's really and groundbreaking. Then, and there's a, uh, another one, one, one amazing episode, which is probably my favourite, which is one called Far Beyond the Stars, which is basically where it has a kind of, I think Cisco maybe hits his head or something like that. I can't remember how, how it goes through it, but it's set in Earth in the 1950s and it has Captain Cisco, who, who is black, mm-hmm. as a science fiction writer, and all wow. the crew are in kind of like it's like the Wizard of Oz. All the crew are in different roles in this little this little area in kind of where the, the kind of there was all the kind of racial issues back then. I say all the racial issues back then. We've still got them now, so this is still completely relevant. Where you have women, for instance, DC Fontana, who Dave mentioned earlier, is a very important writer. Her name is Dorothy Fontana, but she had to put her name as DC Fontana because she was a woman, so she had to put her, her initials in. Um, so as a woman, she'd be less believable kind of yeah, at the time. It, it, kind of she just wouldn't it's, have got there. It, 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 no, exactly. exactly. Which is a shame, but that's how it was. And this is all about this writer that creates Deep Space Nine as the story for this little pulp sci-fi magazine and it not being run because he's black and all of the racial issues from that and his frustration of that. And it's a beautiful, beautiful episode. Following on from Deep Space Nine and, in fact, again, cross-cutting... About a third of the way through, Voyager started. Yeah, do you guys feel the same way about this? No, Voyager's from... shite. Speaking as an outsider, I think by the time we get to um, Voyager, I think it's just come a bit tired. I mean, I think we've had like, I mean, ever since Next Gen came along, and then obviously they they got progressively less popular as well. Yeah, they did. I, I think it was just a bit overkill. It's like, oh, you know, more. So I mean, like. I mean, I I, I I like the diversity we've had in the captains. Like, you know, we start off with Kirk, and then we've gone something different with Picard, and now we've had um, even sort of more more racial. So obviously, I'd take like, uh, like a, I'm sure Cisco's like a lot more interesting character than the fact that he's a black guy. But you have got like a, a black captain, and you got a female captain. Now I can't really tell you much about them as characters, but there is, there is some sort of progressiveness in the series there. <laughs> The problem. I'll talk about Voyager for a bit then. Uh, the problem with Voyager is, firstly, the crew are kind of like a greatest hits crew. So you know you've got the sort of, um, you know, you've got a Vulcan there. He doesn't play it too badly, but you know you've got that. And when you look at the crew, you've got the rebellious one who's meant to be sort of the Kirkstroke Riker of this crew, but he's not really. The captain. Well, she does. She plays the role very well. But her, the extent of her characterization is she likes coffee. That's about it. You know, they don't do a lot with her. And then a lot of the problem then after is it pisses away its premise. And its premise is brilliant. Because they get slung across the galaxy. And at maximum warp, it would take them 75 years to get home. So they've got no federation around them. They've got no support. They've got none of the... And every race they encounter certainly in the early going, they don't know. So it's not like, oh, they're allies, they're not. It, it, it really could have been an attempt to almost reimagine the original series mm. for a new generation. And also Deep Space Nine and a little bit the next generation, but not so much, 
took ages setting up the marquee. And the marquee are kind of almost like a terrorist cell, really. But again, ev- like everything else in this world, it's a, a point of view. And it's, all, it's basically all to do with the peace between Cardassia and, and the Bajorans and all the rest of it. They set this up, and the Marquis are like a group of rebels with their own ships and fleets and everything else. Voyager is made up half and half of the two crews. So there should be a ton of conflict there from two vastly different ideologies and also a lot of people who've already rejected the Federation. You're away from the Federation, so you should be in the situation where... Um, you know, by the second day, there should be crew members going, I ain't wearing the fucking uniform. What are you going to make me do it? They do make noises about supplies, but frankly, they should have real supply problems. Um, and perhaps certain races on the on the ship could only eat certain foods they don't have or something like that. And it pisses away its premise entirely. They get right there and their immediate, nope, our first mission is to the Federation. So they behave like a completely normal crew. All of the sort of um, all of the marquee crew sort of fall into line. You get a bit of anger from Balana Torres, the chief engineer, occasionally, but that's purely just a reminder she's half Klingon, so she's got a bit of a temper. The the antagonists they meet early on are like the Kazon, who are like if the Klingon were made out of broccoli, this this would be what they are. The the show looks tired and it's frightened to take chances, so it takes none. And what you end up with is so pale compared to what came before. It also really starts this fucking trend I hate that we see in Enterprise as well of almost fetishizing the ship. In Enterprise, there's a point where the ensign on, and I forgot this fucking name, which tells you everything, has a go at flying the ship or sitting in the captain's chair. And he's one step away from whipping it out and having a wank. He's so excited. And it's the same on this ship when Harry Kim gets a go. What I will say is it's quite attractive. They've got a low lighting on the bridge that I quite like. But it pisses away its premise. Charlie, what do you think? Yeah. I um, the, th- the thing is, Voyager came out in 1995, which was two years after Deep Space Nine has launched. And it feels like a reaction to the early the early fan talk or whatever that people had against Deep Space Nine because it took place on a station, because it was all about conflict, because it was a very different view of Star Trek than we'd seen before. It feels like very much a knee-jerk reaction of that uh, and very much back towards, um, okay, well, let's do it about a ship again and we'll have it about exploring, but we've already done this, so we'll have it in this quadrant, so we'll send them back. Yeah, it's very boring, it's very bland. The characters um, are all pretty annoying. Um, We've I seen versions that. of them before as well. Exactly, they're all, they're all very thin, kind of. Um, you've just taken the previous characters and just kind of mixed them around a bit. Just yeah, very very tired. The Kazon are the worst villains in the history of science fiction ever, um, and they're just like cavemen. And yeah, they they just astonishingly bad. Some of it. Um, but there are and, one or two really, really good episodes. There are. Oh yes, no, so, yes. I mean, no so, Star Trek is entirely worth it. Yeah, you, you can always count. Some and stuff uh, also, really it's good. got a, it's probably got a better first season than than Next Gen as well. It starts a little stronger. Yeah. In the, yeah. I, I watched two or three of the better episodes from the first season and thought, oh, this is going to be great, and then it wasn't. Yeah. 
I, th- I think really the, the saving grace for, for me was the Doctor, the holographic Doctor. Um, I love Robert Picardo, the actor. I love anyway in pretty much everything he's done. He did a lot of films with Joe Dante. Um, and, and he uh, was also he was also he was also Kevin yeah. Arnold's gym teacher <laughs> in the Wonder Years. No. Yeah, he was. Always he wore is. a baseball cap in that, but yeah. And he, he was he was a werewolf in The Howling. No. He was he was the the one who did the main transformation. He's that brilliant. He's the one bit of the show that I look at and say, no other show's actually done the Doctor better. There were a couple I like as much, like Bones is brilliant, but he's great mm. and he really does and, stand and, out. And he does actually appear in one of the films. He does. So does Janeway as well. But uh, but that's a character, <laughs> really. Yeah. yeah, that's a. That doesn't matter. <laughs> no, but yeah, I, I, it's kind of like I just gave up after a while, and I don't regret giving up at all. And then, of course, we move on to Enterprise, which I feel very similar about. I think that's why it failed the way it did because it came at the end where obviously the, the series was already very tired. It's all by now. It's fourteen years old. Star Star Trek yeah. has run uninterrupted, often more than one series at a time. In fact, for all but five years of that time, Star Trek has run like two seasons at a time for 14 years. Uh, you know, everything has its day. And it's a lot of the same people in charge, like Rick Berman and Bran and Braga and stuff. That's they, get the a, thing. they get a lot of shit now. And Bran and Braga made the point that, like, it's because I was there at the end. People forget the good stuff we did. And they're right, but they've, they've run out of ideas and they weren't taking any chances with it. And, and Enterprise is all very fucking safe too. I do want to... Uh... I think I think I'd go and revisit it or visit it someone because I've never seen it. Uh, apart from like a couple of bits and pieces, but uh, I think what put me off was the theme song. Um, yeah, but I mean the biggest, <laughs> the biggest problem for me with Enterprise is it's a bit like when you get a remake of like Halloween and they've got to show you in depth Mike Myers' background, mm. or you know the Killing Joke, and we're shown how the Joker came to be. And it's stuff that actually detracts knowing. Well, for example, the Klingons in Kirk's era do not have ridged foreheads. They're a bit darker and they've got goatees. That's all. By the feature film era, they've got ridged foreheads. And by later uh, TNG and DS9, they've got really ridged foreheads. Enterprise felt the need to explain that. And it, you know, some, with some sort of virus storyline. And it's like, let it go. It was makeup. And so it's bollocks. And it's, it's, it, it really is stupid. You we- have them sort of meeting Ferengi and Borg and Romulans, even though they sort of didn't. So they kind of cheat their way around it. And I just think, I don't think Scott Bakula, I mean, I like Scott Bakula a lot, but I don't think he's particularly well suited as a captain. He's got very little gravitas. He's much better at oh boy, and the the, the second officer, the uh, the science officer in it, jo- uh, Jolene Blaylock, who plays T'Pol. She is what I'm talking about when I talk about people completely missing what a what a Vulcan is, because she just plays it with zero intonation in her voice whatsoever. So everything is delivered unbelievably flat, and I'm thinking, has no one showed this woman like Leonard Nimoy? You didn't go back and watch the original series. Yeah, I I think it's quite weak. The one thing it's got going for it is they do go for like a submarine aesthetic and they do have like quarters where they're sleeping in bunk beds and stuff. And I think that's quite a logical precursor 
so it's not worthless but i mean i tried to re-watch it recently and i had them all on blu-ray and i have seen all of it but after 11 i think i got through about 11 episodes and then just went forget it i was going to watch it everything before we got to this it's not good enough the show is tired i just want to go back to, to what you were saying about the klingons um just to, to go back to DS9 in a sec, there's an episode of DS9 called um, Trials and Tribulations. Oh, it's which was, yeah. yeah, which was for the 30th anniversary of Star Trek, which had um, a, uh, which basically crossed over a DS9 with the original, um, the Trouble with Tribbles episode. And there is one section where you see the Klingons from oh, that original God. episode in the bar, and you have. I'm Drago's and, manager. Yeah. yeah. And you have Worf and Dr. Bashir and Chief O'Brien in the uh, and Odo in this bar, and they see these Klingons, and then all look at Worf, and he just says, "It is something we do not talk about to outsiders." <laughs> but I much prefer I much prefer that explanation. It's just like it's just a little sort of jokey like thing. Yeah. You don't have to like, well, well, we'll get into that right now. Nudge, wink, done. It's like Worf moves to DS Nine, yeah. And yet he manages to be on the Enterprise in all of the films. Now, in the first one, they explain it. And by the end, as he's about to explain it, the sound drops off and they go to somebody else. And I like that. It's just like you don't have to explain everything. And that's what Enterprise was trying to do. And it's it's just filling in all these gaps we don't care about instead of it writing its own story and its own path. So I don't think it's that good. I do know people who like it a lot. I don't think it's worthless. I think there are good episodes of it, but I think it's comfortably the weakest of... It, it's along with Voyager. They are the, the bottom two for me. Before we're done tonight, we really ought to just uh, touch upon the films and what we think, we're, the structure of what we're going to do and what we think we think of the films before we revisit. So, Charlie, let's start with you, because obviously you're, you're the fan. Uh, without ranking them, we don't want to do that, but generally speaking, which do you like, which don't you like? Which don't I like? Star Trek and Starkness. Is that about um, it? <laughs> I'm not I'm not a massive fan of Nemesis, but other than that, really, there's, there's no other Star Trek that I don't like. I think Into Darkness, because of what it tried to do, what it attempted, and what it failed so badly at doing, is, is so kind of insulting to Star Trek itself. That uh, is is why I, I don't like it. But um, I mean, I, I'm pretty easy. There's, I mean, there's certainly there are certain varying degrees of quality of uh, of quality. And I will say I'm not a massive fan of First Contact, which obviously we'll discuss uh, when we get to that one. Yeah. Um, but uh, the one I mean, my favourite is the motion picture, and I, I think it's it's just a really underappreciated film. And I think there are kind of angles from which to see that film and the kind of context which which people don't perhaps take into account um, again because it has a very deliberate pacing which has led some people to call it the slow motion picture or the motionless um, picture exactly. <laughs> yeah. um, I mean not, to be fair Charlie of all the films to put motion in the title of <laughs> from this series, <laughs> but yeah there's very there's, much of it there's a lot of motion um, <laughs> I'm joking there's Shatner's eyebrows and toupee um, <laughs> but uh yeah no and and it's yeah because you see the wrath the wrath of khan in the original series there's a very different pace to it and so certainly 
um, much more towards maybe something like 2001s or something like that. Um, certainly, I'm not putting it in the same area of quality. But I mean, yeah, I'm, I, I'm a big fan of Star Trek. Wrath of Khan is, is kind of goes without saying. Um, I mean, yeah, objectively, it's the best one, even though Star Trek Motion Pictures is my favourite. Um, I'm a big fan of Star Trek 3, which a lot of people aren't necessarily a fan yeah, of. Yeah, that gets um, kind of a hard time. Yeah, and I I like Star Trek 5 quite a bit. Again, not necessarily Yay! objectively. <laughs> I have a soft spot of 5, I'll be honest with you. And Generations. But again, we'll uh, argue over that later Thanks on. that in a minute. Chris, what about you with the films? Uh, first one, motion picture, I've not really sat through and watched, but I understand my my basic uh, un- um, conception of it is basically it's like a typical uh, 40, 55 minute um, Star Trek episode, but just extended with long gazing shots into like a, an actual... Uh, 90 minute running time or, or, or something like that. There's actually only one of those, but it is about six and a half minutes long. But that's the impression I yeah. get before sitting watching it. Um, so that's what I'm expecting. Uh, Rafa Khan I've seen a few times. Great. I think Free is, suffers from being like part one of a story kind of deal, but I don't think is I don't think it's bad, but I think it's uh, it suffers from like uh, a, a story that's unfinished. It ends in a in a place where it's not a satisfying conclusion. Uh, four. Uh, actually, I don't think I've actually sat down and watched four properly as well. Um, that tends to be the non-Star Trek yeah, fans' favorite. So, if you like, and I'm not knocking it for that, but it is. It's yeah. very accessible to non-fans. So I'll be interested to see how that play, whether it's actually funny or whether it's you know whether I even like it at all. Uh, Star Trek Five. Um, I'll I'll agree. I think it's I think it's it's a bad film, but <gasps> it's he uh, <laughs> sounds shocked. Though. But um, <laughs> I don't know. You're going to universally say that. panned film is bad. Another <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it, news man stepping foot up, getting foot wet. It, it, it's a, it, it's a bad film, but it, it's one it's one of those films that is kind of almost so bad it's good, but it has touches of mo. I think in its in its idea, I think it's got a good idea going for it, and it has a few moments. Particularly, it has particularly one of my favourite Kirk moments. Let's hold that till we get to it. But I know, I know the moment you're on about. Uh, the other Kirk moment is in Rafa Khan. That, I, that I, yeah, um, I think. Uh, and then Traffic Six, Undiscovered Country, and the first cinematic Star Trek. Uh, again, I really like. It's like Rafa Khan. I think it's up there. It's it's just a really. I think I was actually thinking about it the other day. If I was to actually introduce someone to Star Trek in the terms of the films, I think Undiscovered Country would be would be like a good shout to um, show someone because I think it's that that's that's a good example of a, a Star Trek film that's accessible to everyone. I think any you can sit you can sit anyone in front of, in in front of anyone whether like didn't even, I mean seen an episode or seen anything of Star Trek. Uh, and they they get it. They I think that it works as 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 a story uh, without any prior knowledge. Um, and then we get generations, which I think is okay. I think it's like your general free star Star Trek film. Um, Contact, which I think is basically same along the same lines, but I think it goes in a bit more action, cheating McShootson like space battle type thing, <laughs> um, which. It's probably more entertaining, 
And then uh, Insurrection, which, again, is kind of like a Star Trek standard, like, um, two-parter, a uh, next-gen episode, but sort of strung together as a film. And Nemesis, which I, th- I have seen, which I think is kind of, like, dumb fun, but it, but it, but I, but I think to Star Trek as as a as an idea is a bit of a slap in the face, uh, and of course the the remakes, uh, the, the remakes or the, the the reboots as well. Um, really enjoyed the the first JJ film. Um, I've I, I rewatched Into Darkness recently, and I gotta say I actually really enjoyed it. Apart from the last third, where it just comes like an absolute train wreck, know what the fuck are you doing? But as a blockbuster kind of popcorn flick, I think it it it's okay. But as a Star Trek film, it's terrible. But we'll get there. <laughs> we'll see how I feel when I wait to watch it again. And uh, and the new one is uh, is okay. Becky, you've you've not seen a few of them. No, I think I've seen the first, like the motion picture, and the second one, um, Khan, probably ages ago. Um, I think when I was getting into it. But the other original series, I've not seen sadly. Um, so there's kind of me at the bottom, and there's you and Charlie at the top, and then Chris somewhere in the middle. Um, so, but and then obviously I saw all the generation ones. I think the first one came out. I must have been like ten, I think, when it, when it came out. So maybe I caught it on home release, um, and then saw the rest in the cinema with my dad. Um, and obviously seen all the reboot series. Um, quite love the 2009 film. I was, found that really enjoyable. Um, yeah, Into Darkness, I feel the same way as Chris about it. They're kind of like it's a it's a decent action movie, but a Star Trek film, not so much. Um, and obviously, Better to Come Come Back is amazing. Um, but I think uh, when I come to it, obviously just just being a massive Sherlock fan generally, so that, that's where it all comes from. But yeah, I think what, what I'll do is I'll go and watch Wrath of Khan, and then I'll go back and see. Um, I'll probably see, you know, Into Darkness and a New Light. Um, it won't be a yeah, positive one. No. <laughs> um, but yeah, Beyond, I really enjoyed. Um, Love mm. Tribute, there are lots of, lots of nods to the original series and a lot of um, sort of nods to kind of like um, various aspects of the original series and various different races and episode, you know, references to individual episodes themselves where like core, hardcore track fans will love um, and even casual fans can, you know, can appreciate. Um but no, I'm kind of looking forward to actually seeing some of these films for the, for the first time. Um, I'm being like the complete series newbie. So, yeah, looking forward to it. With me, uh, the original crew films, there's one I don't like, one which is five. But I've not seen it that often. I, I saw it a couple of times. It's basically William Shatner's ego feature length. Uh, he's the director of it and... Shatner's always needs to be reined in, really. The, the film's not helped by the fact that um, really cheap. Some of the effects and all the rest of it, they went, you know, it, it, it's not been helped by that. The motion picture I'm not sure about is the honest answer. I put it on. I love the way it starts. I, I the, the bit everyone hates, which is Kirk, you know, being flown to the Enterprise, I love because I just love that arrangement of the music. And he sells me that sense of wonder. And not only that, that ship's beautiful. It's a complete refit. It's the first time we've seen it since the original series, which was this little grey block, which was an attractive design in itself, but the reboot's lovely and it's simple. It's kept simple, which is some of the problems I've got with the reboot, where they try and make it look like a fucking muscle car or something. (laughs) Give us the stripes and all. Well, no, I don't mind the reboot one either, but certainly the cells are way too fucking chunky. 
But I, I do like that Enterprise with its blue light. I think that's lovely. The Wrath of Khan is my majesty's for this series. I genuinely adore it. I cried at it the first several times I saw it. It got me quite emotional. It's made on a TV budget, so what it doesn't have that, say, Majesties have is it's not a particularly beautiful film, but it sounds good and it's brilliant. It's what you do with it. It's what you do with the budget. That's what counts. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's a brilliant Quality, not quantity. Uh, oh, I agree. But but there are a couple of films in this series that are properly beautiful, and that this isn't one of them. Star Trek Three looks a bit cheap in places. It's not as good, but it's enjoyable. It is enjoyable. Four, I really like. Again, it's not fashionable amongst Trek fans to say that. It's a little bit like hmm, the one with the whales. But it is. It, but this crew have such an easy ambience with each other, and that that film really plays it excellent. And six, I watched very recently. I've not seen it as often as some, but uh, there's there's a thread in it I don't like that we'll talk about when we get there. That I think is sub murder she wrote, but the actual broad strokes of the film and what the film's trying to achieve, I think is magnificent. And I think it's a wonderful film. Generations, I think, is um, actually crap, but entertaining crap, in that it's it's a bit like Goldeneye. You put it under a modicum of uh, analysis and it utterly falls apart. Oh, poor Goldeneye. But, but, <laughs> similarity with Goldeneye is they're both entertaining. I, I think... Actually, Generations might be the most purely entertaining next-gen film. Uh, First Contact is lauded as this great thing. It's the prettiest. I love the E, the new ship they've got in that one. Um, I think it's very attractive. They've got the new uniforms and everything else. There's a lot to be said for it, but by then the Borg have been defanged. And when we get to it, I will pick a lot of flaws with it. So it's okay. Insurrection is basically a TV episode. I don't know why it's on the big screen. It's okay. Nemesis, I really enjoyed at the time. On rewatch, not so much. It's got a horrible green colour palette as well. It's a sort of film that makes you a bit queasy. And on the reboots, uh, the first one is the rarest beast in the world, in that it's a great film with a terrible script, and that's normally not possible. Uh, you, you know, normally you cannot transcend bad writing. It's badly written, um, and yet it's so much fun. And I walked out. A bit emotional because I walked out with the music playing that plays over the credits. And also I had Star Trek back, you know, so it was really great. Uh, Beyond, I'm just going to skip into darkness for a minute. Beyond is, again, a bit like a TV episode with a huge budget of the original series. It's got that sort of new frontier feel to it. And finally, Pine's actually sort of grown into the chair, kind of. Uh, Into darkness, I am going to fucking monster. I warn you now. Now, when I when I ranked them after, for somebody after Into Darkness came out, I think because it was shiny, shiny, I put it somewhere just below the middle, but it's got worse. The more <laughs> you think about it, the worse it gets. And it's easy to put it b- above something like a five because bigger budget, you know, shiny, shiny. Uh, it's fucking retarded. <gasps> and when we get to it, I will monster it. It's a dreadful <laughs> film. I can't wait for that, to be honest with you. I'm really Before looking forward to it. I think to, my favorite. Uh, well, I already did part of it on a, I think it was Licence to Kill. I started talking about it. Um, <laughs> I don't know how much of a rant. It would depend on my mood on the night, but it's not a good film. But uh, we were asked tonight about on Twitter about commentaries. Now, it's a 19-episode series. We've got the opener tonight. We've then got the six original series uh, crew films. Uh, we then have two commentaries. The Wrath of Khan was a given. Uh, we didn't even put that to the vote. But we put the other five to the vote. 
and there was a clear uh, favourite, thirty-eight uh, percent of you, and it was quite a few voted voted for the voyage home. So we we will be commentating on Star Trek Two and Star Trek Four. Then we will cover the next generation films and two of the three reboots. We may change the order when we get there, but we will do the next generation and then the newer films, but we may leave beyond until after the commentaries. We don't know. But then we put the next generation films to the vote. And I was a little bit surprised by this. I thought First Contact would win. Uh, But we had a slight win, 45% against 39, voted for Generations which I'm quite pleased about because it's entertaining, but there's so much more to rip apart. And then we put the two that were on home release at the time to the vote, and 60% went for Star Trek 2009. So that's the uh, commentary for the reboot crew. And then we will do a uh, Star Trek Beyond, and we will also uh, do a rankings episode. Yeah, I'm actually looking forward to digging into the, the films because I... There's some I'm not exactly 100% much like next week with the motion picture because I'm not actually sat down and watched it in its entirety. I'm looking, yeah, I'm looking forward. I'm looking forward to. I'm, I'm especially looking forward to uh, for here listening you rant about Into Darkness. It'll be, <laughs> I'm very much looking forward to that one. I think that's going to be one of the highlights of the series. I think another day rant is what we like. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> for a preview of it, I think it's our license to kill commentary. We started talking about it. So I had a bit of a mini rant there because the film is really dumb. And not only is it dumb, if you're going to evoke a, be- a, a film from your past, don't evoke do it the best and then make a shit version of it. It's kind of, it's to be expected, it's like, well, second film, we're going to do Khan, oh boy. You know, but also it it's not kind of a remake of Rafa Khan, it's a remake of Space Seed. Really, if you want to be technical. Yeah, but it's also the world's worst kept, worst kept secret. Is he Khan? No, he's John Harrison. No, he's obviously Khan. Come on. I wish he'd been Blofeld. Just to <laughs> 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 like Sherlock and Blofeld. Oh my god. The whole Sherlock community. It's Max the Parrot. Give us a kiss. Is Max the Parrot. <laughs> oh god. Um, yeah, it, it's it's not good. Max. And it's getting worse. And I see people trying to defend it. And I don't want to go into it too much now. But most things I talk about on this show are opinion. You know, I, I don't like a film. I do like a film. I say why that's it. I'm, I'm going to argue at the time that Into Darkness is objectively a bad film. I don't think it's a matter of opinion at all. It's objectively a bad film. I'm absolutely scared I might have to defend Into Darkness in a, in a weird <laughs> no, way. No, don't. Let's, yeah, all me too, me too. Let's all take a big, great turd on it. Go on. <laughs> I'll be coming from the Sherlock camp. I I won't be because Sherlock became shit by its first season. But oh god, you know, yeah, it definitely got worse and worse as, as it went along. I think. Um, but I'm looking forward to the new series anyway. Also, but that's, that's, that's going to be a whole other podcast. It's a bizarre argument. I mean, I quite like the first series of he- Heroes before it went to shit, but it's well, not. A, it's not a way to defend this. No. Oh shit! Fun facts. Fun facts. Make it so. Come on, Carl. Check that. <laughs> <laughs> so fun fact number one obviously track turns 50 this year the first episode being broadcast in september 66 as we mentioned earlier fun fact number two obviously as we mentioned earlier if it wasn't for lucy Walt, we'd be no star track at all um which rhymes. Also rhymes. it rhymes it's done fun fact number three the show knuckles 
was also the first African-American woman to hold an important role in the new US sci-fi TV series. Perfect number four. I don't... It would be interesting to get, look at why during the series as well. The, I mean, the Star Trek movies haven't historically made... I mean, they've, they've made money, but they haven't made massive, you know, massive amounts of the box office. Um, but I think also reading and altogether it's made of over about two billion at the worldwide box office, which is pretty impressive, I think. That's four-fifths fun, like, fun, folks! Charlie, can you can you make it five-fifths fun? Yeah, um, Star Trek has had uh, quite a few celebrity cameos over the years. Um, one of the most interesting ones was Mick Fleetwood from Fleetwood Mac, who appeared as an alien in one of the episodes of uh, The Next Generation. That's now completely fun, folks! Right, where can we find us all on social media? Uh, me? You can find out the Plastic Kid 1976 on Twitter. Uh, you can find me at Simatronics on Twitter, and you can find this podcast on my website, which is at Simatronics.co.uk. You can find me at Films on Wax on Twitter. You can find me at RV Movies. You can find us at Expect to Talk on Twitter, and also the same on Facebook. You can email us, expect us to talk at gmail.com. And also, if you go to Films on Wax, uh, their iTunes feed, which would you search under films on wax or under movie drum yeah, charlie just put no it's, yeah just put films on wax into uh, itunes charlie just recent i mean it's worth listening to anyway but particularly pertinent to this you just did a two-part show on the music of trek we've been fully inducted into the world of trek which means becca we will return with star trek the motion picture